0: A psychiatrist sometimes asks his patients, who suffer from a multitude of torments, great and small, why do you not commit suicide? From their answers, he can often find the guideline for his psychotherapy. In one life, there is love for one's children to tie to. In another life, a talent to be used. In a third, perhaps only lingering memories worth preserving. To weave these slender threads of a broken life into a firm pattern of meaning and responsibility is the object and challenge of logotherapy, which is Dr. Frankel's own version of modern existential analysis. In this book, Dr. Frankel explains the experience which led to his discovery of logotherapy. As a long-time prisoner in bestial concentration camps, he found himself stripped to naked existence. His father, mother, brother, and his wife died in camps, or were sent to the gas-ovens, so that, excepting for his sister, his entire family perished in these camps. How could he, every possession lost, every value destroyed, suffering from hunger, cold and brutality, hourly expecting extermination, how could he find life worth preserving? A psychiatrist, who personally has faced such extremity, is a psychiatrist worth listening to? He, if any one, should be able to view our human condition wisely and with compassion. Dr. Frankel's words have a profoundly honest ring, for they rest on experiences too deep for deception. What he has to say gains in prestige because of his present position on the medical faculty of the University in Vienna and because of the renown of the logotherapy clinics that today are springing up in many lands. Patented on his own famous neurological polyclinic in Vienna. One cannot help but compare Victor Frankl's approach to theory and therapy with the work of his predecessor Sigmund Freud. Both physicians concern themselves primarily with the nature and cure of neuroses. Freud finds the root of these distressing disorders in the anxiety caused by conflicting and unconscious motives. Frankl distinguishes several forms of neurosis and traces some of them, the noogenic neuroses, to the failure of the sufferer to find meaning and a sense of responsibility in his existence. Freud stresses frustration in the sexual life. Frankl, frustration in the will to meaning. In Europe today, there is a marked turning away from Freud, and a widespread embracing of existential analysis which takes several related forms, the school of logotherapy being one. It is characteristic of Frankel's tolerant outlook that he does not repudiate Freud, but builds gladly on his contributions. Nor does he quarrel with other forms of existential therapy, but welcomes kinship with them. The present narrative, brief though it is, is artfully constructed and gripping. On two occasions I have read it through at a single sitting, unable to break away from its spell. Somewhere beyond the midpoint of the story... Dr. Frankel introduces his own philosophy of logotherapy. He introduces it so gently into the continuing narrative that only after finishing the book does the reader realize that here is an essay of profound depth, and not just one more brutal tale of concentration camps. From this autobiographical fragment the reader learns much. He learns what a human being does when he suddenly realizes he has nothing to lose except his so ridiculously naked life. Frankel's description of the mixed flow of emotion and apathy is arresting. First to the rescue comes a cold, detached curiosity concerning one's fate. Swiftly too come strategies to preserve the remnants of one's life, though the chances of surviving are slight. Hunger, humiliation, fear, and deep anger at injustice are rendered tolerable by closely guarded images of beloved persons, by religion, by a grim sense of humour and even by glimpses of the healing beauties of nature, a tree or a sunset. But these moments of comfort do not establish the will to live unless they help the prisoner make larger sense out of his apparently senseless suffering. It is here that we encounter the central theme of existentialism. To live is to suffer, to survive is to find meaning in the suffering. If there is a purpose in life at all, there must be a purpose in suffering and in dying, But no man can tell another what this purpose is. Each must find out for himself, and must accept the responsibility that his answer prescribes. If he succeeds, he will continue to grow in spite of all indignities. Frankl is fond of quoting Nietzsche. He who has a why to live can bear with almost any how. In the concentration camp, every circumstance conspires to make the prisoner lose his hold. All the familiar goals in life are snatched away. What alone remains is the last of human freedoms, the ability to choose one's attitude in a given set of circumstances. This ultimate freedom, recognized by the ancient Stoics as well as by modern existentialists, takes on vivid significance in Frankl's story. The prisoners were only average men, but some, at least, by choosing to be worthy of their suffering proved man's capacity to rise above his outward fate. As a psychotherapist, the author, of course, wants to know how men can be helped to achieve this distinctively human capacity. How can one awaken in a patient the feeling that he is responsible to life for something, however grim his circumstances may be? Frankel gives us a moving account of one collective therapeutic session he held with his fellow prisoners. At the publisher's request, Dr. Frankel has added a statement of the basic tenets of logotherapy as well as a bibliography. Up to now, most of the publications of this third Viennese school of psychotherapy, the predecessors being the Freudian and Adlerian schools, have been chiefly in German. The reader will therefore welcome Dr. Frankel's supplement to his personal narrative. Unlike many European existentialists, Frankel is neither pessimistic nor anti religious. On the contrary, For a writer who faces fully the ubiquity of suffering and the forces of evil, he takes a surprisingly hopeful view of man's capacity to transcend his predicament and discover an adequate guiding truth. I recommend this little book heartily, for it is a gem of dramatic narrative, focused upon the deepest of human problems. It has literary and philosophical merit, and provides a compelling introduction to the most significant psychological movement of our day. Gordon W. Allport Gordon W. Allport, formerly a Professor of Psychology at Harvard University, was one of the foremost writers and teachers in the field in this hemisphere. He was author of a large number of original works on psychology, and was the editor of the Journal of Abnormal and Social Psychology. It is chiefly through the pioneering work of Professor Allport that Dr. Frankel's momentous theory was introduced to this country. Moreover, it is to his credit that the interest shown here in logotherapy is growing by leaps and bounds. Preface to the 1984 edition This book has now lived to see its seventy-third printing in English, in addition to having been published in nineteen other languages, and the English editions alone have sold almost two and a half million copies. These are the dry facts, and they may well be the reason why reporters of American newspapers, and particularly of American TV stations, more often than not start their interviews after listing these facts by exclaiming, Dr. Frankel, your book has become a true bestseller. How do you feel about such a success? Whereupon I react, by reporting that in the first place I do not at all see in the bestseller status of my book so much an achievement and accomplishment on my part, as an expression of the misery of our time. If hundreds of thousands of people reach out for a book whose very title promises to deal with the question of a meaning to life, it must be a question that burns under their fingernails. To be sure, something else may have contributed to the impact of the book. Its second theoretical part, Logotherapy in a Nutshell, boils down, as it were, to the lesson one may distil from the first part, the autobiographical account experiences in a concentration camp. Whereas part one serves as the existential validation of my theories. Thus both parts mutually support their credibility. I had none of this in mind when I wrote the book in 1945, and I did so within nine successive days and with the firm determination that the book would be published anonymously. In fact, the first printing of the original German version does not show my name on the cover though at the last moment, just before the book's initial publication, I did finally give in to my friends, who had urged me to let it be published with my name at least on the title-page. At first, however, it had been written with the absolute conviction that, as an anonymous opus, it could never earn its author literary fame. I had wanted simply to convey to the reader, by way of a concrete example, that life holds a potential meaning under any conditions, even the most miserable ones and I thought that if the point were demonstrated in a situation as extreme as that in a concentration camp, my book might gain a hearing. I therefore felt responsible for writing down what I had gone through, for I thought it might be helpful to people who are prone to despair. And so it is both strange and remarkable to me that, among some dozens of books I have authored, Precisely this one, which I had intended to be published anonymously, so that it could never build up any reputation on the part of the author, did become a success. Again and again I therefore admonish my students, both in Europe and in America, don't aim at success. The more you aim at it and make it a target, the more you're going to miss it. For success, like happiness, cannot be pursued. It must ensue and it only does so as the unintended side effect of one's personal dedication to a cause greater than oneself, or as the by-product of one's surrender to a person other than oneself. Happiness must happen, and the same holds for success. You have to let it happen by not caring about it. I want you to listen to what your conscience commands you to do, and go on to carry it out to the best of your knowledge. Then you will live to see that in the long run In the long run, I say, success will follow you precisely because you had forgotten to think of it. Should the following text of this book, dear reader, give you a lesson to learn from Auschwitz, the foregoing text of its preface can give you a lesson to learn from an unintentional bestseller. As to this new edition, a chapter has been added in order to update the theoretical conclusions of the book. Drawn from a lecture I gave as the honorary president Of the Third World Congress of Logotherapy in the Auditorium Maximum of Regensburg University in West Germany, June 1983, it now forms the Postscript 1984 to this book, and is entitled The Case for a Tragic Optimism. The chapter addresses present-day concerns and how it is possible to say yes to life, in spite of all the tragic aspects of human existence. To hark back to its title, it is hoped that an optimism for our future may flow from the lesson learned from our tragic past. V.E.F. Vienna, 1983 Part 1 Experiences in a Concentration Camp This book does not claim to be an account of facts and events, but of personal experiences experiences which millions of prisoners have suffered time and again. It is the inside story of a concentration camp, told by one of its survivors. This tale is not concerned with the great horrors which have already been described often enough, though less often believed, but with the multitude of small torments. In other words, it will try to answer this question. How was everyday life in a concentration camp reflected in the mind of the average prisoner? Most of the events described here did not take place in the large and famous camps, but in the small ones where most of the real extermination took place. This story is not about the suffering and death of great heroes and martyrs, nor is it about the prominent capos prisoners who acted as trustees having special privileges or well-known prisoners. Thus it is not so much concerned with the sufferings of the mighty, but with the sacrifices, the crucifixion, and the deaths of the great army of unknown and unrecorded victims. It was these common prisoners, who bore no distinguishing marks on their sleeves, whom the Capos really despised. While these ordinary prisoners had little or nothing to eat, the Capos were never hungry. In fact, many of the Capos fared better in the camp than they had in their entire lives. Often they were harder on the prisoners than were the guards, and beat them more cruelly than the SS men did. These capos, of course, were chosen only from those prisoners whose characters promised to make them suitable for such procedures, and if they did not comply with what was expected of them, they were immediately demoted. They soon became much like the SS men and the camp wardens, and may be judged on a similar psychological basis. It is easy for the outsider to get the wrong conception of camp life, a conception mingled with sentiment and pity. Little does he know of the hard fight for existence which raged among the prisoners. This was an unrelenting struggle for daily bread and for life itself, for one's own sake or for that of a good friend. Let us take the case of a transport which was officially announced to transfer a certain number of prisoners to another camp. But it was a fairly safe guess that its final destination would be the gas-chambers. A selection of sick or feeble prisoners incapable of work would be sent to one of the big central camps which were fitted with gas-chambers and crematoriums. The selection process was the signal for a free fight among all the prisoners, or of group against group. All that mattered was that one's own name and that of one's friend were crossed off the list of victims though everyone knew that for each man saved, another victim had to be found. A definite number of prisoners had to go with each transport. It did not really matter which, since each of them was nothing but a number. On their admission to the camp, at least this was the method in Auschwitz, all their documents had been taken from them, together with their other possessions. Each prisoner, therefore, had had an opportunity to claim a fictitious name or profession, and for various reasons many did this. The authorities were interested only in the captives' numbers. These numbers were often tattooed on their skin, and also had to be sewn to a certain spot on the trousers, jacket or coat. Any guard who wanted to make a charge against the prisoner just glanced at his number, and how we dreaded such glances. He never asked for his name. To return to the convoy about to depart, there was neither time nor desire to consider moral or ethical issues. Every man was controlled by one thought only, to keep himself alive for the family waiting for him at home, and to save his friends. With no hesitation, therefore, he would arrange for another prisoner, another number, to take his place in the transport. As I have already mentioned, the process of selecting capos was a negative one. Only the most brutal of the prisoners were chosen for this job, although there were some happy exceptions. But apart from the selection of capos which was undertaken by the SS, there was a sort of self-selecting process going on the whole time among all of the prisoners. On the average, only those prisoners could keep alive who, after years of trekking from camp to camp, had lost all scruples in their fight for existence. They were prepared to use every means, honest and otherwise, even brutal force, theft, and betrayal of their friends, in order to save themselves. We who have come back, by the aid of many lucky chances or miracles, whatever one may choose to call them, we know, the best of us did not return. Many factual accounts about concentration camps are already on record. Here facts will be significant only as far as they are part of a man's experiences. It is the exact nature of these experiences that the following essay will attempt to describe. For those who have been inmates in a camp, it will attempt to explain their experiences in the light of present-day knowledge. And for those who have never been inside, it may help them to comprehend, and above all to understand, the experiences of that only too small percentage of prisoners who survived, and who now find life very difficult. These former prisoners often say, We dislike talking about our experiences. No explanations are needed for those who have been inside. And the others will understand neither how we felt then, nor how we feel now. To attempt a methodical presentation of the subject is very difficult, as psychology requires a certain scientific detachment. But does a man who makes his observations while he himself is a prisoner possess the necessary detachment? Such detachment is granted to the outsider, but he is too far removed to make any statements of real value. Only the man inside knows. His judgments may not be objective, his evaluations may be out of proportion. This is inevitable. An attempt must be made to avoid any personal bias, and that is the real difficulty of a book of this kind. At times it will be necessary to have the courage to tell of very intimate experiences. I had intended to write this book anonymously, using my prison number only. But when the manuscript was completed, I saw that, as an anonymous publication, it would lose half its value, and that I must have the courage to state my convictions openly. I therefore refrained from deleting any of the passages, in spite of an intense dislike of exhibitionism. I shall leave it to others to distill the contents of this book into dry theories. These might become a contribution to the psychology of prison life which was investigated after the First World War, and which acquainted us with the syndrome of barbed-wire sickness. We are indebted to the Second World War for enriching our knowledge of the psychopathology of the masses, if I may quote a variation of the well-known phrase and title of a book by Le Bon. For the war gave us the war of nerves, and it gave us the concentration camp. As this story is about my experiences as an ordinary prisoner, it is important that I mention, not without pride, that I was not employed as a psychiatrist in camp, or even as a doctor, except for the last few weeks. A few of my colleagues were lucky enough to be employed in poorly heated first-aid posts, applying bandages made of scraps of waste paper. But I was number one hundred and nineteen, one hundred and four, and most of the time I was digging and laying tracks for railway lines. At one time my job was to dig a tunnel, without help for a water-main under a road. This feat did not go unrewarded. Just before Christmas 1944, I was presented with a gift of so-called premium coupons. These were issued by the construction firm to which we were practically sold as slaves. The firm paid the camp authorities a fixed price per day, per prisoner. The coupons cost the firm fifty fenigs each, and could be exchanged for six cigarettes often weeks later although they sometimes lost their validity. I became the proud owner of a token worth twelve cigarettes. But more important, the cigarettes could be exchanged for twelve soups, and twelve soups were often a very real respite from starvation. The privilege of actually smoking cigarettes was reserved for the capo, who had his assured quota of weekly coupons, or possibly for a prisoner who worked as a foreman in a warehouse or workshop and received a few cigarettes in exchange for doing dangerous jobs. The only exceptions to this were those who had lost the will to live, and wanted to enjoy their last days. Thus when we saw Comrade smoking his own cigarettes, we knew he had given up faith in his strength to carry on, and, once lost, the will to live seldom returned. When one examines the vast amount of material which has been amassed as the result of many prisoners' observations and experiences, three phases of the inmate's mental reactions to camp life become apparent. The period following his admission, the period when he is well entrenched in camp routine, and the period following his release and liberation. The symptom that characterizes the first phase is shock. Under certain conditions, shock may even precede the prisoner's formal admission to the camp. I shall give as an example the circumstances of my own admission. Fifteen hundred persons had been travelling by train for several days and nights. There were eighty people in each coach. All had to lie on top of their luggage, the few remnants of their personal possessions. The carriages were so full that only the top parts of the windows were free to let in the grey of dawn. Everyone expected the train to head for some munitions factory, in which we would be employed as forced labour. We did not know whether we were still in Silesia, or already in Poland. The engine's whistle had an uncanny sound, like a cry for help sent out in commiseration for the unhappy load which it was destined to lead into perdition. Then the train shunted, obviously nearing a main station. Suddenly a cry broke from the ranks of the anxious passengers. There is a sign—Auschwitz!" Everyone's heart missed a beat at that moment—Auschwitz. The very name stood for all that was horrible—gas-chambers, crematoriums, massacres. Slowly, almost hesitatingly, the train moved on, as if it wanted to spare its passengers the dreadful realization as long as possible—Auschwitz. With the progressive dawn, the outlines of an immense camp became visible. Long stretches of several rows of barbed-wire fences, watch-towers, searchlights, and long columns of ragged human figures, gray in the grayness of dawn, trekking along the straight desolate roads to what destination we did not know. There were isolated shouts and whistles of command. We did not know their meaning. My imagination led me to see gallows with people dangling on them. I was horrified, but this was just as well, because step by step we had to become accustomed to a terrible and immense horror. Eventually we moved into the station. The initial silence was interrupted by shouted commands. We were to hear those rough, shrill tones from then on, over and over again in all the camps. Their sound was almost like the last cry of a victim, and yet there was a difference. It had a rasping hoarseness as if it came from the throat of a man who had to keep shouting like that, a man who was being murdered again and again. The carriage doors were flung open, and a small detachment of prisoners stormed inside. They wore striped uniforms, their heads were shaved, but they looked well fed. They spoke in every possible European tongue, and all with a certain amount of humour, which sounded grotesque under the circumstances. Like a drowning man clutching a straw, My inborn optimism, which has often controlled my feelings even in the most desperate situations, clung to this thought. These prisoners look quite well. They seem to be in good spirits and even laugh. Who knows? I might manage to share their favourable position. In psychiatry there is a certain condition known as delusion of reprieve. The condemned man, immediately before his execution, gets the illusion that he might be reprieved at the very last minute. We too clung to shreds of hope, and believed to the last moment that it would not be so bad. Just the sight of the red cheeks and round faces of those prisoners was a great encouragement. Little did we know then that they formed a specially chosen elite, who for years had been the receiving squad for new transports as they rolled into the station day after day. They took charge of the new arrivals and their luggage, including scarce items and smuggled jewellery. Auschwitz must have been a strange spot in this Europe of the last years of the war. There must have been unique treasures of gold and silver, platinum and diamonds, not only in the huge storehouses, but also in the hands of the SS. Fifteen hundred captives were cooped up in a shed, built to accommodate probably two hundred at the most. We were cold and hungry, and there was not enough room for everyone to squat on the bare ground, let alone to lie down. One five-ounce piece of bread was our only food in four days. Yet I heard the senior prisoners in charge of the Shed bargain with one member of the receiving party about a tie-pin made of platinum and diamonds. Most of the profits would eventually be traded for liquor, schnapps. I do not remember any more just how many thousands of marks were needed to purchase the quantity of schnapps required for a gay evening, but I do know that those long-term prisoners needed schnapps. Under such conditions, who could blame them for trying to dope themselves? There was another group of prisoners who got liquor supplied in almost unlimited quantities by the SS. These were the men who were employed in the gas chambers and crematoriums and who knew very well that one day they would be relieved by a new shift of men, and that they would have to leave their enforced role of executioner and become victims themselves. Nearly everyone in our transport lived under the illusion that he would be reprieved, that everything would yet be well. We did not realize the meaning behind the scene that was to follow presently. We were told to leave our luggage in the train and to fall into two lines, women on one side, men on the other in order to file past a senior SS officer. Surprisingly enough, I had the courage to hide my haversack under my coat. My line filed past the officer, man by man. I realized that it would be dangerous if the officer spotted my bag. He would at least knock me down. I knew that from previous experience. Instinctively I straightened on approaching the officer, so that he would not notice my heavy load. Then I was face to face with him. He was a tall man who looked slim and fit in his spotless uniform. What a contrast to us, who were untidy and grimy after our long journey. He had assumed an attitude of careless ease, supporting his right elbow with his left hand. His right hand was lifted, and with the forefinger of that hand he pointed very leisurely to the right or to the left. None of us had the slightest idea of the sinister meaning behind that little movement of a man's finger, pointing now to the right, and now to the left, but far more frequently to the left. It was my turn. Somebody whispered to me that to be sent to the right side would mean work, the way to the left being for the sick and those incapable of work, who would be sent to a special camp. I just waited for things to take their course, the first of many such times to come. My haversack weighed me down a bit to the left, but I made an effort to walk upright, The S.S. man looked me over, appeared to hesitate, then put both his hands on my shoulders. I tried very hard to look smart, and he turned my shoulders very slowly until I faced right, and I moved over to that side. The significance of the finger game was explained to us in the evening. It was the first selection, the first verdict made on our existence or non-existence. For the great majority of our transport, about ninety per cent, it meant death. Their sentence was carried out within the next few hours. Those who were sent to the left were marched from the station straight to the crematorium. This building, as I was told by someone who worked there, had the word Bath written over its doors in several European languages. On entering, each prisoner was handed a piece of soap, and then, But, mercifully, I do not need to describe the events which followed. Many accounts have been written about this horror. We who were saved, the minority of our transport, found out the truth in the evening. I inquired from prisoners who had been there for some time, where my colleague and friend P. had been sent. Was he sent to the left side? Yes, I replied. Then you can see him there, I was told. Where. A hand pointed to the chimney a few hundred yards off, which was sending a column of flame up into the grey sky of Poland. It dissolved into a sinister cloud of smoke. That's where your friend is, floating up to heaven, was the answer. But I still did not understand until the truth was explained to me in plain words. But I am telling things out of their turn. From a psychological point of view, we had a long, long way in front of us from the break of that dawn at the station until our first night's rest at the camp. Escorted by SS guards with loaded guns, we were made to run from the station, past electrically charged barbed wire, through the camp to the cleansing station. For those of us who had passed the first selection, this was a real bath. Again our illusion of reprieve found confirmation. The SS men seemed almost charming. Soon we found out their reason. They were nice to us as long as they saw watches on our wrists, and could persuade us in well-meaning tones to hand them over. Would we not have to hand over all our possessions anyway? And why should not that relatively nice person have the watch? Maybe one day he would do one a good turn. We waited in a shed, which seemed to be the ante-room to the disinfecting chamber. SS men appeared, and spread out blankets, into which we had to throw all our possessions, all our watches and jewellery. There were still naive prisoners among us, who asked, to the amusement of the more seasoned ones who were there as helpers, if they could not keep a wedding-ring, a medal, or a good-luck piece. No one could yet grasp the fact that everything would be taken away. I tried to take one of the old prisoners into my confidence, approaching him furtively I pointed to the roll of paper in the inner pocket of my coat, and said, Look, this is the manuscript of a scientific book. I know what you will say, that I should be grateful to escape with my life, that that should be all I can expect of fate. But I cannot help myself. I must keep this manuscript at all costs. It contains my life's work. Do you understand that?" Yes. He was beginning to understand. A grin spread slowly over his face first piteous, then more amused, mocking, insulting, until he bellowed one word at me in answer to my question, a word that was ever present in the vocabulary of the camp inmates. Shit. At that moment I saw the plain truth, and did what marked the culminating point of the first phase of my psychological reaction. I struck out my whole former life. Suddenly there was a stir among my fellow-travellers, who had been standing about with pale, frightened faces, helplessly debating. Again we heard the hoarsely shouted commands. We were driven with blows into the immediate ante-room of the bath. There we assembled around an S.S. man, who waited until we had all arrived. Then he said, "'I will give you two minutes, and I shall time you by my watch. In these two minutes you will get fully undressed, and drop everything on the floor where you are standing.' You will take nothing with you, except your shoes, your belt, or suspenders, and possibly a truss. I am starting to count—now!" With unthinkable haste, people tore off their clothes. As the time grew shorter, they became increasingly nervous, and pulled clumsily at their underwear, belts, and shoelaces. Then we heard the first sounds of whipping, leather straps beating down on naked bodies. Next, we were herded into another room to be shaved. Not only our heads were shorn, but not a hair was left on our entire bodies. Then on to the showers, where we lined up again. We hardly recognized each other, but with great relief some people noted that real water dripped from the sprays. While we were waiting for the shower, our nakedness was brought home to us. We really had nothing now except our bare bodies, even minus hair. All we possessed, literally, was our naked existence. What else remained for us as a material link with our former lives? For me there were my glasses and my belt. The latter I had to exchange later on for a piece of bread. There was an extra bit of excitement in store for the owners of trusses. In the evening the senior prisoner in charge of our hut welcomed us with a speech in which he gave us his word of honour that he would hang, personally, From that beam, he pointed to it, any person who had sown money or precious stones into his truss. Proudly he explained that as a senior inhabitant, the camp laws entitled him to do so. Where our shoes were concerned, matters were not so simple. Although we were supposed to keep them, those who had fairly decent pairs had to give them up after all, and were given, in exchange, shoes that did not fit. In for real trouble were those prisoners who had followed the apparently well-meant advice given in the ante-room of the senior prisoners, and had shortened their jack-boots by cutting the tops off, then smearing soap on the cut edges to hide the sabotage. The SS men seemed to have waited for just that. All suspected of this crime had to go into a small adjoining room. After a time we again heard the lashings of the strap and the screams of tortured men, This time it lasted for quite a while. Thus the illusions some of us still held were destroyed one by one, and then, quite unexpectedly, most of us were overcome by a grim sense of humour. We knew that we had nothing to lose except our so ridiculously naked lives. When the showers started to run, we all tried very hard to make fun, both about ourselves and about each other. After all, real water did flow from the sprays. Apart from that strange kind of humour, another sensation seized us, curiosity. I have experienced this kind of curiosity before, as a fundamental reaction toward certain strange circumstances. When my life was once endangered by a climbing accident, I felt only one sensation at the critical moment, curiosity, curiosity as to whether I should come out of it alive, or with a fractured skull, or some other injuries. Cold curiosity predominated even in Auschwitz, somehow detaching the mind from its surroundings, which came to be regarded with a kind of objectivity. At that time one cultivated this state of mind as a means of protection. We were anxious to know what would happen next, and what would be the consequence, for example, of our standing in the open air, in the chill of late autumn, stark naked, and still wet from the showers. In the next few days our curiosity evolved into surprise surprised that we did not catch cold. There were many similar surprises in store for new arrivals. The medical men among us learned first of all, textbooks tell lies. Somewhere it is said that man cannot exist without sleep for more than a stated number of hours. Quite wrong. I had been convinced that there were certain things I just could not do. I could not sleep without this, or I could not live without that or the other. The first night in Auschwitz. We slept in beds, which were constructed in tiers. On each tier, measuring about six and a half to eight feet, slept nine men, directly on the boards. Two blankets were shared by each nine men. We could, of course, lie only on our sides, crowded and huddled against each other, which had some advantages because of the bitter cold. Though it was forbidden to take shoes up to the bunks, some people did use them secretly as pillows, in spite of the fact that they were caked with mud. Otherwise one's head had to rest on the crook of an almost dislocated arm. And yet sleep came, and brought oblivion and relief from pain for a few hours. I would like to mention a few similar surprises on how much we could endure. We were unable to clean our teeth. And yet in spite of that, and a severe vitamin deficiency, we had healthier gums than ever before. We had to wear the same shirts for half a year, until they had lost all appearance of being shirts. For days we were unable to wash, even partially because of frozen water-pipes, and yet the sores and abrasions on hands which were dirty from work in the soil did not suppurate, that is, unless there was frostbite. Or, for instance, a light sleeper, who, used to be disturbed by the slightest noise in the next room, now found himself lying pressed against a comrade who snored loudly a few inches from his ear, and yet slept quite soundly through the noise. If someone now asked of us the truth of Dostoevsky's statement that flatly defines man as a being who can get used to anything, we would reply, Yes, a man can get used to anything, but do not ask us how. But our psychological investigations have not taken us that far yet. Neither had we prisoners reached that point. We were still in the first phase of our psychological reactions. The thought of suicide was entertained by nearly everyone, if only for a brief time. It was born of the hopelessness of the situation, the constant danger of death looming over us daily and hourly, and the closeness of the deaths suffered by many of the others. From personal convictions which will be mentioned later, I made myself a firm promise on my first evening in camp that I would not run into the wire. This was a phrase used in camp to describe the most popular method of suicide, touching the electrically charged barbed-wire fence. It was not entirely difficult for me to make this decision. There was little point in committing suicide, since, for the average inmate, Life expectation, calculating objectively and counting all likely chances, was very poor. He could not, with any assurance, expect to be among the small percentage of men who survived all the selections. The prisoner of Auschwitz, in the first phase of shock, did not fear death. Even the gas chambers lost their horrors for him after the first few days. After all, they spared him the act of committing suicide. Friends whom I have met later have told me that I was not one of those whom the shock of admission greatly depressed. I only smiled, and quite sincerely, when the following episode occurred the morning after our first night in Auschwitz. In spite of strict orders not to leave our blocks, a colleague of mine, who had arrived in Auschwitz several weeks previously, smuggled himself into our hut. He wanted to calm and comfort us, and tell us a few things. He had become so thin that at first we did not recognize him. With a show of good humor, and a devil-may-care attitude, he gave us a few hurried tips. Don't be afraid. Don't fear the selections. Dr. M., the SS medical chief, has a soft spot for doctors. This was wrong. My friend's kindly words were misleading. One prisoner, the doctor of a block of huts, and a man of some sixty years, told me how he had entreated Dr. M. to let off his son— who was destined for gas. Dr. M coldly refused. "'But one thing I beg of you,' he continued. "'Shave daily, if at all possible, even if you have to use a piece of glass to do it, even if you have to give your last piece of bread for it. You will look younger, and the scraping will make your cheeks look ruddier. If you want to stay alive, there is only one way—look fit for work.' If you even limp, because, let us say, you have a small blister on your heel, and an SS man spots this, he will wave you aside, and the next day you are sure to be gassed. Do you know what we mean by a Muslim? A man who looks miserable, down and out, sick and emaciated, and who cannot manage hard physical labour any longer, that is a Muslim. Sooner or later, usually sooner, every Muslim goes to the gas chambers. Therefore remember, shave. Stand and walk smartly. Then you need not be afraid of gas. All of you standing here, even if you have only been here twenty-four hours, you need not fear gas except, perhaps, you.' And then he pointed to me and said, "'I hope you don't mind my telling you frankly.' To the others he repeated, "'Of all of you, he is the only one who must fear the next selection. So don't worry.' And I smiled. I am now convinced that anyone in my place on that day would have done the same." I think it was Lessing who once said, "'There are things which must cause you to lose your reason, or you have none to lose.' An abnormal reaction to an abnormal situation is normal behaviour. Even we psychiatrists expect the reactions of a man to an abnormal situation, such as being committed to an asylum, to be abnormal in proportion to the degree of his normality. The reaction of a man to his admission to a concentration camp also represents an abnormal state of mind, but, judged objectively, it is a normal and, as will be shown later, typical reaction to the given circumstances. These reactions, as I have described them, began to change in a few days. The prisoner passed from the first to the second phase the phase of relative apathy in which he achieved a kind of emotional death. Apart from the already described reactions, the newly-arrived prisoner experienced the tortures of other most painful emotions, all of which he tried to deaden. First of all, there was his boundless longing for his home and his family. This often could become so acute that he felt himself consumed by longing. Then there was disgust, disgust with all the ugliness which surrounded him even in its mere external forms. Most of the prisoners were given a uniform of rags which would have made a scarecrow elegant by comparison. Between the huts in the camp lay pure filth, and the more one worked to clear it away, the more one had to come in contact with it. It was a favourite practice to detail a new arrival to a work group whose job was to clean the latrines and remove the sewage, if, as usually happened, some of the excrements splashed into his face during its transport over bumpy fields, any sign of disgust by the prisoner, or any attempt to wipe off the filth, would only be punished with a blow from a capo. And thus the mortification of normal reactions was hastened. At first the prisoner looked away if he saw the punishment parades of another group. He could not bear to see fellow prisoners marched up and down for hours in the mire, their movements directed by blows. Days or weeks later things changed. Early in the morning, when it was still dark, the prisoner stood in front of the gate with his detachment, ready to march. He heard a scream and saw how a comrade was knocked down, pulled to his feet again, and knocked down once more. And why? He was feverish, but had reported to sick bay at an improper time. He was being punished for this irregular attempt to be relieved of his duties. But the prisoner who had passed into the second state of his psychological reactions did not avert his eyes any more. By then his feelings were blunted, and he watched unmoved. Another example. He found himself waiting at sick bay, hoping to be granted two days of light work inside the camp because of injuries, or perhaps edema or fever. He stood unmoved while a twelve-year-old boy was carried in, who had been forced to stand at attention for hours in the snow or to work outside with bare feet, because there were no shoes for him in the camp. His toes had become frostbitten, and the doctor on duty picked off the black, gangrenous stumps with tweezers, one by one. Disgust, horror, and pity are emotions that our spectator could not really feel any more. The sufferers, the dying and the dead, became such commonplace sights to him after a few weeks of camp life, that they could not move him any more. I spent some time in a hut for typhus patients, who ran very high temperatures, and were often delirious, many of them moribund. After one of them had just died, I watched, without any emotional upset, the scene that followed, which was repeated over and over again with each death. One by one, the prisoners approached the still warm body. One grabbed the remains of a messy meal of potatoes. Another decided that the corpse's wooden shoes were an improvement on his own, and exchanged them. A third man did the same with a dead man's coat, and another was glad to be able to secure some, just imagine, genuine string. All this I watched with unconcern. Eventually I asked the nurse to remove the body. When he decided to do so, he took the corpse by its legs, allowing it to drop into the small corridor between the two rows of boards, which were the beds for the fifty typhus patients, and dragged it across the bumpy earthen floor toward the door. The two steps which led up into the open air always constituted a problem for us, since we were exhausted from a chronic lack of food. After a few months' stay in the camp we could not walk up those steps, which were each about six inches high, without putting our hands on the door-jambs to pull ourselves up. The man with the corpse approached the steps. Wearily he dragged himself up, then the body, first the feet, then the trunk, and finally with an uncanny rattling noise, the head of the corpse bumped up the two steps. My place was on the opposite side of the hut, next to the small sole window which was built near the floor. While my cold hands clasped a bowl of hot soup from which I sipped greedily, I happened to look out the window. The corpse, which had just been removed, stared in at me with glazed eyes. Two hours before I had spoken to that man. Now I continued sipping my soup. If my lack of emotion had not surprised me from the standpoint of professional interest, I would not remember this incident now, because there was so little feeling involved in it. Apathy, the blunting of the emotions, and the feeling that one could not care any more, were the symptoms arising during the second stage of the prisoner's psychological reactions, and which eventually made him insensitive to daily and hourly beatings. By means of this insensibility, the prisoner soon surrounded himself with a very necessary protective shell. Beatings occurred on the slightest provocation, sometimes for no reason at all. For example, bread was rationed out at our work site, and we had to line up for it. Once the man behind me stood off a little to one side, and that lack of symmetry displeased the SS guard. I did not know what was going on in the line behind me nor in the mind of the SS guard, but suddenly I received two sharp blows on my head. Only then did I spot the guard at my side who was using his stick. At such a moment it is not the physical pain which hurts the most and this applies to adults as much as to punish children, it is the mental agony caused by the injustice, the unreasonableness of it all. Strangely enough, A blow which does not even find its mark can, under certain circumstances, hurt more than one that finds its mark. Once I was standing on a railway track in a snowstorm. In spite of the weather, our party had to keep on working. I worked quite hard at mending the track with gravel, since that was the only way to keep warm. For only one moment I paused to get my breath and to lean on my shovel. Unfortunately, the guard turned around just then and thought I was loafing. The pain he caused me was not from any insults or any blows. That guard did not think it worth his while to say anything, not even a swear word, to the ragged, emaciated figure standing before him, which probably reminded him only vaguely of a human form. Instead, he playfully picked up a stone and threw it at me. That, to me, seemed the way to attract the attention of a beast, to call a domestic animal back to its job a creature with which you have so little in common that you do not even punish it. The most painful part of beatings is the insult which they imply. At one time we had to carry some long, heavy girders over icy tracks. If one man slipped, he endangered not only himself but all the others who carried the same girder. An old friend of mine had a congenitally dislocated hip. He was glad to be capable of working in spite of it since the physically disabled were almost certainly sent to death when a selection took place. He limped over the track with an especially heavy girder, and seemed about to fall and drag the others with him. As yet I was not carrying a girder, so I jumped to his assistance without stopping to think. I was immediately hit on the back, rudely reprimanded, and ordered to return to my place. A few minutes previously the same guard who struck me had told us deprecatingly that we pigs— lacked the spirit of comradeship. Another time, in a forest, with a temperature at two degrees Fahrenheit, we began to dig up the topsoil, which was frozen hard, in order to lay water-pipes. By then I had grown rather weak physically. Along came a foreman with chubby, rosy cheeks. His face definitely reminded me of a pig's head. I noticed that he wore lovely warm gloves in that bitter cold. For a time he watched me silently. I felt that trouble was brewing, for in front of me lay the mound of earth which showed exactly how much I had dug. Then he began. "'You pig! I have been watching you the whole time. I'll teach you to work, yet. Wait till you dig dirt with your teeth, you'll die like an animal. In two days I'll finish you off. You've never done a stroke of work in your life. What were you, swine? A businessman?' I was past caring. But I had to take his threat of killing me seriously, so I straightened up and looked him directly in the eye. I was a doctor, a specialist. What? A doctor? I bet you got a lot of money out of people. As it happens, I did most of my work for no money at all, in clinics for the poor. But now I had said too much. He threw himself on me and knocked me down, shouting like a madman. I can no longer remember what he shouted. I want to show with this apparently trivial story that there are moments when indignation can rouse even a seemingly hardened prisoner, indignation not about cruelty or pain, but about the insult connected with it. That time blood rushed to my head because I had to listen to a man judge my life who had so little idea of it, a man—I must confess, the following remark which I made to my fellow prisoners after the scene afforded me childish relief who looked so vulgar and brutal that the nurse in the outpatient ward in my hospital would not even have admitted him to the waiting-room. Fortunately, the capo in my working party was obligated to me. He had taken a liking to me because I listened to his love-stories and matrimonial troubles, which he poured out during the long marches to our work site. I had made an impression on him with my diagnosis of his character and with my psychotherapeutic advice. After that he was grateful and this had already been of value to me. On several previous occasions he had reserved a place for me next to him in one of the first five rows of our detachment, which usually consisted of two hundred and eighty men. That favour was important. We had to line up early in the morning, while it was still dark. Everybody was afraid of being late, and of having to stand in the back rows. If men were required for an unpleasant and disliked job, the senior capo appeared, and usually collected the men he needed from the back rows. These men had to march away to another especially dreaded kind of work under the command of strange guards. Occasionally the senior capo chose men from the first five rows just to catch those who tried to be clever. All protests and entreaties were silenced by a few well-aimed kicks, and the chosen victims were chased to the meeting-place with shouts and blows. However. As long as my capo felt the need of pouring out his heart, this could not happen to me. I had a guaranteed place of honour next to him. But there was another advantage, too. Like nearly all the camp inmates, I was suffering from edema. My legs were so swollen, and the skin on them so tightly stretched, that I could barely bend my knees. I had to leave my shoes unlaced, in order to make them fit my swollen feet. There would not have been space for socks, even if I had had any so my partly bare feet were always wet and my shoes always full of snow this of course caused frostbite and chilblains every single step became real torture clumps of ice formed on our shoes during our marches over snow-covered fields over and again men slipped and those following behind stumbled on top of them then the column would stop for a moment but not for long one of the guards soon took action and worked over the men with the butt of his rifle to make them get up quickly. The more to the front of the column you were, the less often you were disturbed by having to stop, and then to make up for lost time by running on your painful feet. I was very happy to be the personally appointed physician to his honour the capo, and to march in the first row at an even pace. As an additional payment for my services, I could be sure that as long as soup was being dealt out at lunchtime at our work-site, he would, when my turn came, dip the ladle right to the bottom of the vat, and fish out a few peas. This capo, a former army officer, even had the courage to whisper to the foreman, whom I had quarrelled with, that he knew me to be an unusually good worker. That didn't help matters, but he nevertheless managed to save my life, one of the many times I was to be saved. The day after the episode with the foreman, he smuggled me into another work-party. There were four men who felt sorry for us, and who did their best to ease our situation, at least at the building site. But even they kept on reminding us that an ordinary labourer did several times as much work as we did, and in a shorter time. But they did see reason if they were told that a normal workman did not live on ten and a half ounces of bread theoretically, actually, we often had less, and one and three-quarter pints of thin soup per day, that a normal labourer did not live under the mental stress we had to submit to, not having news of our families, who had either been sent to another camp, or gassed right away, that a normal workman was not threatened by death continuously, daily and hourly. I even allowed myself to say once to a kindly foreman, If you could learn from me how to do a brain operation, In as short a time as I am learning this road work from you, I would have great respect for you. And he grinned. Apathy, the main symptom of the second phase, was a necessary mechanism of self-defense. Reality dimmed, and all efforts and all emotions were centered on one task, preserving one's own life and that of the other fellow. It was typical to hear the prisoner's while they were being herded back to camp from their work sites in the evening, sigh with relief, and say, Well, another day is over. It can be readily understood that such a state of strain, coupled with the constant necessity of concentrating on the task of staying alive, forced the prisoner's inner life down to a primitive level. Several of my colleagues in camp who were trained in psychoanalysis often spoke of a regression in the camp inmate, a retreat to a more primitive form of mental life. His wishes and desires became obvious in his dreams. What did the prisoner dream about most frequently? Of bread, cake, cigarettes, and nice warm baths. The lack of having these simple desires satisfied led him to seek wish-fulfillment in dreams. Whether these dreams did any good is another matter. The dreamer had to wake from them to the reality of camp life, and to the terrible contrast between that and his dream illusions. I shall never forget how I was roused one night by the groans of a fellow-prisoner, who threw himself about in his sleep, obviously having a horrible nightmare. Since I had always been especially sorry for people who suffered from fearful dreams or deliria, I wanted to wake the poor man. Suddenly I drew back the hand which was ready to shake him, frightened at the thing I was about to do. At that moment I became intensely conscious of the fact that no dream, no matter how horrible, could be as bad as the reality of the camp which surrounded us, and to which I was about to recall him. Because of the high degree of undernourishment which the prisoners suffered, it was natural that the desire for food was the major primitive instinct around which mental life centred. Let us observe the majority of prisoners, when they happened to work near each other, and were for once not closely watched, they would immediately start discussing food. One fellow would ask another working next to him in the ditch what his favourite dishes were. Then they would exchange recipes, and plan the menu for the day when they would have a reunion, the day in a distant future when they would be liberated and returned home. They would go on and on, picturing it all in detail, until suddenly a warning was passed down the trench, usually in the form of a special password or number, THE GUARD IS COMING. I always regarded the discussions about food as dangerous. Is it not wrong to provoke the organism with such detailed and effective pictures of delicacies, when it has somehow managed to adapt itself to extremely small rations and low calories? Though it may afford momentary psychological relief, it is an illusion which physiologically surely must not be without danger. During the later part of our imprisonment, the daily ration consisted of very watery soup given out once daily, and the usual small bread ration. In addition to that, there was the so-called extra allowance, consisting of three-fourths of an ounce of margarine, or of a slice of poor quality sausage, or of a little piece of cheese or a bit of synthetic honey, or a spoonful of watery jam, varying daily. In calories this diet was absolutely inadequate, especially taking into consideration our heavy manual work, and our constant exposure to the cold in inadequate clothing. The sick who were under special care, that is, those who were allowed to lie in the huts instead of leaving the camp for work, were even worse off. When the last layers of subcutaneous fat had vanished, and we looked like skeletons disguised with skin and rags, we could watch our bodies beginning to devour themselves. The organism digested its own protein, and the muscles disappeared. Then the body had no powers of resistance left. One after another, the members of the little community in our hut died. Each of us could calculate with fair accuracy whose turn would be next, and when his own would come. After many observations, we knew the symptoms well, which made the correctness of our prognoses quite certain. "'He won't last long,' or, "'This is the next one,' we whispered to each other. And when, during our daily search for lice, we saw our own naked bodies in the evening, we thought alike, "'This body here, my body, is really a corpse already. "'What has become of me? "'I am but a small portion of a great mass of human flesh,' of a mass behind barbed wire, crowded into a few earthen huts, a mass of which daily a certain portion begins to rot, because it has become lifeless. I mentioned above how unavoidable were the thoughts about food and favourite dishes which forced themselves into the consciousness of the prisoner whenever he had a moment to spare. Perhaps it can be understood, then, that even the strongest of us was longing for the time when he would have fairly good food again, not for the sake of good food itself, but for the sake of knowing that the sub-human existence, which had made us unable to think of anything other than food, would at last cease. Those who have not gone through a similar experience can hardly conceive of the soul-destroying mental conflict and clashes of willpower which a famished man experiences. They can hardly grasp what it means to stand digging in a trench, listening only for the siren to announce 9.30 or 10 a.m., the half-hour lunch interval, when bread would be rationed out, as long as it was still available. Repeatedly asking the foreman, if he wasn't a disagreeable fellow, what the time was, and tenderly touching a piece of bread in one's coat pocket, first stroking it with frozen loveless fingers, then breaking off a crumb and putting it in one's mouth, and finally, with the last bit of will-power, pocketing it again, having promised oneself that morning to hold out till afternoon. We could hold endless debates on the sense or nonsense of certain methods of dealing with the small bread ration, which was given out only once daily during the latter part of our confinement. There were two schools of thought. One was in favour of eating up the ration immediately. This had the twofold advantage of satisfying the worst hunger pangs for a very short time at least once a day, and of safeguarding against possible theft or loss of the ration. The second group which held with dividing the ration up, used different arguments. I finally joined their ranks. The most ghastly moment of the twenty-four hours of camp life was the awakening, when, at a still nocturnal hour, the three shrill blows of a whistle tore us pitilessly from our exhausted sleep and from the longings in our dreams. We then began the tussle with our wet shoes, into which we could scarcely force our feet, which were sore and swollen with edema and there were the usual moans and groans about petty troubles, such as the snapping of wires which replaced shoelaces. One morning I heard someone, whom I knew to be brave and dignified, cry like a child, because he finally had to go to the snowy marching grounds in his bare feet, as his shoes were too shrunken for him to wear. In those ghastly minutes I found a little bit of comfort. A small piece of bread which I drew out of my pocket and munched with absorbed delight. Undernourishment, besides being the cause of the general preoccupation with food, probably also explains the fact that the sexual urge was generally absent. Apart from the initial effects of shock, this appears to be the only explanation of a phenomenon which a psychologist was bound to observe in those all-male camps, that, as opposed to all other strictly male establishments, such as army barracks, there was little sexual perversion. Even in his dreams the prisoner did not seem to concern himself with sex, although his frustrated emotions and his finer, higher feelings did find definite expression in them. With the majority of the prisoners, the primitive life and the effort of having to concentrate on just saving one's skin led to a total disregard of anything not serving that purpose, and explained the prisoner's complete lack of sentiment. This was brought home to me on my transfer from Auschwitz to a camp affiliated with Dachau. The train which carried us, about two thousand prisoners, passed through Vienna. At about midnight, we passed one of the Viennese railway stations. The track was going to lead us past the street where I was born, past the house where I had lived many years of my life, in fact, until I was taken prisoner. There were fifty of us in the prison car, which had two small, barred peepholes. There was only enough room for one group to squat on the floor, while the others, who had to stand up for hours, crowded round the peepholes. Standing on tiptoe, and looking past the others' heads through the bars of the window, I caught an eerie glimpse of my native town. We all felt more dead than alive, since we thought that our transport was heading for the camp at Mauthausen, and that we had only one or two weeks to live. I had a distinct feeling that I saw the streets, the squares, and the houses of my childhood with the eyes of a dead man who had come back from another world, and was looking down on a ghostly city. After hours of delay, the train left the station, and there was my street. My street! The young lads, who had a number of years of camp life behind them, and for whom such a journey was a great event, stared attentively through the peephole. I began to beg them, to entreat them to let me stand in front for one moment only. I tried to explain how much a look through that window meant to me just then. My request was refused with rudeness and cynicism. You lived here all those years? Well, then, you have seen quite enough already. In general, there was also a cultural hibernation in the camp. There were two exceptions to this—politics and religion. Politics were talked about everywhere in camp, almost continuously. The discussions were based chiefly on rumours which were snapped up and passed around avidly. The rumours about the military situation were usually contradictory. They followed one another rapidly, and succeeded only in making a contribution to the war of nerves that was waged in the minds of all the prisoners. Many times hopes for a speedy end to the war, which had been fanned by optimistic rumours, were disappointed. Some men lost all hope, but it was the incorrigible optimists who were the most irritating companions. The religious interest of the prisoners, as far and as soon as it developed, was the most sincere imaginable. The depth and vigour of religious belief often surprised and moved a new arrival. Most impressive in this connection were improvised prayers or services in the corner of a hut, or in the darkness of the locked cattle truck in which we were brought back from a distant work site, tired, hungry, and frozen in our ragged clothing. In the winter and spring of 1945, There was an outbreak of typhus, which infected nearly all the prisoners. The mortality was great among the weak, who had to keep on with their hard work as long as they possibly could. The quarters for the sick were most inadequate. There were practically no medicines or attendants. Some of the symptoms of the disease were extremely disagreeable, an irrepressible aversion to even a scrap of food, which was an additional danger to life, and terrible attacks of delirium. The worst case of delirium was suffered by a friend of mine, who thought that he was dying and wanted to pray. In his delirium he could not find the words to do so. To avoid these attacks of delirium, I tried, as did many of the others, to keep awake for most of the night. For hours I composed speeches in my mind. Eventually I began to reconstruct the manuscript which I had lost in the disinfection chamber of Auschwitz and scribbled the key words in shorthand on tiny scraps of paper. Occasionally a scientific debate developed in camp. Once I witnessed something I had never seen, even in my normal life, although it lay somewhat near my own professional interests, a spiritualistic seance. I had been invited to attend by the camp's chief doctor, also a prisoner, who knew that I was a specialist in psychiatry. The meeting took place in his small private room in the sick quarters. A small circle had gathered, among them, quite illegally, the warrant officer from the sanitation squad. One man began to invoke the spirits with a kind of prayer. The camp's clerk sat in front of a blank sheet of paper, without any conscious intention of writing. During the next ten minutes, after which time the séance was terminated because of the medium's failure to conjure the spirits to appear, His pencil slowly drew lines across the paper, forming, quite legibly, ve Vi. It was asserted that the clerk had never learned Latin, and that he had never before heard the words ve Victis, Woe to the Vanquished. In my opinion, he must have heard them once in his life, without recollecting them, and they must have been available to the Spirit, the Spirit of his subconscious mind, at that time, a few months before our liberation and the end of the war. In spite of all the enforced physical and mental primitiveness of the life in a concentration camp, it was possible for spiritual life to deepen. Sensitive people who were used to a rich intellectual life may have suffered much pain, they were often of a delicate constitution, but the damage to their inner selves was less. They were able to retreat from their terrible surroundings to a life of inner riches and spiritual freedom. Only in this way can one explain the apparent paradox that some prisoners of a less hardy make-up often seem to survive camp life better than did those of a robust nature. In order to make myself clear, I am forced to fall back on personal experience. Let me tell what happened on those early mornings when we had to march to our work site. There were the shouted commands. Detachment! Forward march! Left two, three, four! Left two, three, four! left two, three, four, left two, three, four, first man about, left and left and left and left, caps off. These words sound in my ears even now. At the order, caps off, we passed the gate of the camp, and searchlights were trained upon us. Whoever did not march smartly got a kick, and worse off was the man who because of the cold, had pulled his cap back over his ears before permission was given. We stumbled on in the darkness, over big stones and through large puddles, along the one road leading from the camp. The accompanying guards kept shouting at us and driving us with the butts of their rifles. Anyone with very sore feet supported himself on his neighbour's arm. Hardly a word was spoken. The icy wind did not encourage talk. Hiding his mouth behind his upturned collar, the man marching next to me whispered suddenly, "'If our wives could see us now! I do hope they are better off in their camps, and don't know what is happening to us.' That brought thoughts of my own wife to mind. And as we stumbled on for miles, slipping on icy spots, supporting each other time and again, dragging one another up and onward, nothing was said, but we both knew— Each of us was thinking of his wife. Occasionally I looked at the sky, where the stars were fading, and the pink light of the morning was beginning to spread behind a dark bank of clouds. But my mind clung to my wife's image, imagining it with an uncanny acuteness. I heard her answering me, saw her smile, her frank and encouraging look. Real or not, her look was then more luminous than the sun which was beginning to rise. A thought transfixed me. For the first time in my life, I saw the truth as it is set into song by so many poets, proclaimed as the final wisdom by so many thinkers. The truth, that love is the ultimate and the highest goal to which man can aspire. Then I grasped the meaning of the greatest secret that human poetry and human thought and belief have to impart. The salvation of man is through love and in love. I understood how a man who has nothing left in this world still may know bliss, be it only for a brief moment, in the contemplation of his beloved. In a position of utter desolation, when man cannot express himself in positive action, when his only achievement may consist in enduring his sufferings in the right way, an honourable way, in such a position man can, through loving contemplation of the image he carries of his beloved, achieve fulfilment. For the first time in my life, I was able to understand the meaning of the words, The angels are lost in perpetual contemplation of an infinite glory. In front of me a man stumbled, and those following him fell on top of him. The guard rushed over and used his whip on them all. Thus my thoughts were interrupted for a few minutes. But soon my soul found its way back from the prisoner's existence to another world, and I resumed talk with my loved one. I asked her questions, and she answered. She questioned me in return, and I answered. Stop! We had arrived at our work site. Everybody rushed into the dark hut in the hope of getting a fairly decent tool. Each prisoner got a spade or a pickaxe. Can't you hurry up, you pigs? Soon we had resumed the previous day's positions in the ditch. The frozen ground cracked under the point of the pickaxes, and sparks flew. The men were silent, their brains numb. My mind still clung to the image of my wife. A thought crossed my mind. I didn't even know if she was still alive. I knew only one thing, which I have learned well by now. Love goes very far beyond the physical person of the beloved. It finds its deepest meaning in his spiritual being, his inner self. Whether or not he is actually present, whether or not he is still alive at all, ceases somehow to be of importance. I did not know whether my wife was alive, and I had no means of finding out. During all my prison life there was no outgoing or incoming mail. But at that moment it ceased to matter. There was no need for me to know. Nothing could touch the strength of my love, my thoughts, and the image of my beloved. Had I known then that my wife was dead, I think that I would still have given myself, undisturbed by that knowledge, to the contemplation of her image, and that my mental conversation with her would have been just as vivid and just as satisfying. Set me like a seal upon thy heart. Love is as strong as death." This intensification of inner life helped the prisoner find a refuge from the emptiness, desolation and spiritual poverty of his existence, by letting him escape into the past. When given free rein, his imagination played with past events, often not important ones, but minor happenings and trifling things. His nostalgic memory glorified them, and they assumed a strange character. Their world and their existence seemed very distant, and the Spirit reached out for them longingly. In my mind I took bus rides, unlocked the front door of my apartment answered my telephone, switched on the electric lights. Our thoughts often centred on such details, and these memories could move one to tears. As the inner life of the prisoner tended to become more intense, he also experienced the beauty of art and nature as never before. Under their influence he sometimes even forgot his own frightful circumstances. If someone had seen our faces, on the journey from Auschwitz to a Bavarian camp, as we beheld the mountains of Salzburg, with their summits glowing in the sunset, through the little barred windows of the prison carriage, he would never have believed that those were the faces of men who had given up all hope of life and liberty. Despite that factor, or maybe because of it, we were carried away by nature's beauty, which we had missed for so long. In camp, too, a man might draw the attention of a comrade working next to him to a nice view of the setting sun shining through the tall trees of the Bavarian woods, as in the famous watercolor by Dürer, the same woods in which we had built an enormous hidden munitions plant. One evening, when we were already resting on the floor of our hut, dead tired, soup-bowls in hand, a fellow-prisoner rushed in and asked us to run out to the assembly-grounds and see the wonderful sunset. Standing outside, we saw sinister clouds glowing in the west, and the whole sky alive with clouds of ever-changing shapes and colours, from steel-blue to blood-red. The desolate grey mud huts provided a sharp contrast, while the puddles on the muddy ground reflected the glowing sky. Then, after minutes of moving silence, one prisoner said to another, "'How beautiful the world could be!' Another time we were at work in a trench. The dawn was grey around us. Grey was the sky above, grey the snow in the pale light of dawn, grey the rags in which my fellow prisoners were clad, and grey their faces. I was again conversing silently with my wife, or perhaps I was struggling to find the reason for my sufferings, my slow dying. In a last violent protest against the hopelessness of imminent death, I sensed my spirit piercing through the enveloping gloom. I felt it transcend that hopeless, meaningless world, and from somewhere I heard a victorious yes in answer to my question of the existence of an ultimate purpose. At that moment a light was lit in a distant farmhouse, which stood on the horizon as if painted there in the midst of the miserable grey of a dawning morning in Bavaria. Et lux in tenebris lucet, and the light shineth in the darkness. For hours I stood hacking at the icy ground. The guard passed by, insulting me, and once again I communed with my beloved. More and more I felt that she was present, that she was with me. I had the feeling that I was able to touch her, able to stretch out my hand and grasp hers. The feeling was very strong. She was there. Then, at that very moment, a bird flew down silently, and perched just in front of me, on the heap of soil which I had dug up from the ditch, and looked steadily at me. Earlier I mentioned art. Is there such a thing in a concentration camp? It rather depends on what one chooses to call art. A kind of cabaret was improvised from time to time. A hut was cleared temporarily. A few wooden benches were pushed or nailed together, and a programme was drawn up. In the evening those who had fairly good positions in camp, the capos and the workers who did not have to leave camp on distant marches, assembled there. They came to have a few laughs, or perhaps to cry a little, anyway to forget. There were songs, poems, jokes, some with underlying satire regarding the camp. All were meant to help us forget, and they did help. The gatherings were so effective that a few ordinary prisoners went to see the cabaret in spite of their fatigue, even though they missed their daily portion of food by going. During the half-hour lunch interval, when soup, which the contractors paid for and for which they did not spend much, was ladled out at our work site, we were allowed to assemble in an unfinished engine-room. On entering, everyone got a ladleful of the watery soup, while we sipped it greedily. A prisoner climbed onto a tub and sang Italian arias. We enjoyed the songs, and he was guaranteed a double helping of soup, straight from the bottom. That meant with peas. Rewards were given in camp not only for entertainment, but also for applause. I, for example, could have found protection, how lucky I was never in need of it, from the camp's most dreaded capo, who for more than one good reason was known as the murderous capo. This is how it happened. One evening I had the great honour of being invited again to the room where the spiritualistic séance had taken place. There were gathered the same intimate friends of the chief doctor, and, most illegally, the warrant officer from the sanitation squad was again present. The murderous Capo entered the room by chance, and he was asked to recite one of his poems, which had become famous or infamous in camp. He did not need to be asked twice and quickly produced a kind of diary from which he began to read samples of his art. I bit my lips till they hurt, in order to keep from laughing at one of his love-poems, and very likely that saved my life. Since I was also generous with my applause, my life might have been saved, even had I been detailed to his working-party, to which I had previously been assigned for one day, a day that was quite enough for me. It was useful, anyway, to be known to the murderous Capo from a favourable angle, so I applauded as hard as I could. Generally speaking, of course, any pursuit of art in camp was somewhat grotesque. I would say that the real impression made by anything connected with art arose only from the ghost-like contrast between the performance and the background of desolate camp life. I shall never forget how I awoke from the deep sleep of exhaustion on my second night in Auschwitz, roused by music. The senior warden of the hut had some kind of celebration in his room, which was near the entrance of the hut. Tipsy voices bawled some hackneyed tunes. Suddenly there was a silence, and into the night a violin sang a desperately sad tango, an unusual tune not spoiled by frequent playing. The violin wept. And a part of me wept with it, for on that same day someone had a twenty-fourth birthday. That someone lay in another part of the Auschwitz camp, possibly only a few hundred or a thousand yards away, and yet completely out of reach. That someone was my wife. To discover that there was any semblance of art in a concentration camp must be surprise enough for an outsider. But he may be even more astonished to hear that one could find a sense of humour there as well. Of course, only the faint trace of one, and then only for a few seconds or minutes. Humour was another of the soul's weapons in the fight for self-preservation. It is well known that humour, more than anything else in the human make-up, can afford an aloofness and an ability to rise above any situation, even if only for a few seconds. I practically trained a friend of mine who worked next to me on the building site to develop a sense of humour. I suggested to him that we would promise each other to invent at least one amusing story daily about some incident that could happen one day after our liberation. He was a surgeon, and had been an assistant on the staff of a large hospital. So I once tried to get him to smile by describing to him how he would be unable to lose the habits of camp life when he returned to his former work. On the building site, especially when the supervisor made his tour of inspection, the foreman encouraged us to work faster by shouting, ACTION! ACTION! I told my friend, One day you will be back in the operating room, performing a big abdominal operation. Suddenly an orderly will rush in, announcing the arrival of the senior surgeon by shouting, ACTION! ACTION! Sometimes the other men invented amusing dreams about the future such as forecasting that during a future dinner engagement they might forget themselves when the soup was served, and beg the hostess to ladle it from the bottom. The attempt to develop a sense of humour and to see things in a humorous light is some kind of a trick learned while mastering the art of living. Yet it is possible to practice the art of living even in a concentration camp, although suffering is omnipresent. To draw an analogy, A man's suffering is similar to the behaviour of gas. If a certain quantity of gas is pumped into an empty chamber, it will fill the chamber completely and evenly, no matter how big the chamber. Thus suffering completely fills the human soul and conscious mind, no matter whether the suffering is great or little. Therefore the size of human suffering is absolutely relative. It also follows that a very trifling thing can cause the greatest of joys. Take as an example something that happened on our journey from Auschwitz to the camp affiliated with Dachau. We had all been afraid that our transport was heading for the Mauthausen camp. We became more and more tense as we approached a certain bridge over the Danube, which the train would have to cross to reach Mauthausen, according to the statement of experienced traveling companions. Those who have never seen anything similar cannot possibly imagine the dance of joy performed in the carriage by the prisoners, when they saw that our transport was not crossing the bridge, and was instead heading only for Dachau. And again, what happened on our arrival in that camp, after a journey lasting two days and three nights? There had not been enough room for everybody to crouch on the floor of the carriage at the same time. The majority of us had to stand all the way, while a few took turns at squatting on the scanty straw which was soaked with human urine. When we arrived, the first important news that we heard from older prisoners was that this comparatively small camp—its population was two and a half thousand—had no oven, no crematorium, no gas. That meant that a person who had become a Muslim could not be taken straight to the gas chamber, but would have to wait until a so-called sick convoy had been arranged to return to Auschwitz. This joyful surprise put us all in a good mood. The wish of the senior warden of our hut in Auschwitz had come true. We had come, as quickly as possible, to a camp which did not have a chimney, unlike Auschwitz. We laughed and cracked jokes in spite of, and during, all we had to go through in the next few hours. When we knew arrivals were counted, one of us was missing so we had to wait outside in the rain and cold wind, until the missing man was found. He was at last discovered in a hut, where he had fallen asleep from exhaustion. Then the roll-call was turned into a punishment parade. All through the night, and late into the next morning, we had to stand outside, frozen and soaked to the skin after the strain of our long journey. And yet we were all very pleased. There was no chimney in this camp, and Auschwitz was a long way off. Another time we saw a group of convicts pass our work-site. How obvious the relativity of all suffering appeared to us then! We envied those prisoners, their relatively well-regulated, secure and happy life. They surely had regular opportunities to take baths, we thought sadly. They surely had toothbrushes and clothes-brushes, mattresses, a separate one for each of them, and monthly mail bringing them news of the whereabouts of their relatives, or at least of whether they were still alive or not. We had lost all that a long time ago. And how we envied those of us who had the opportunity to get into a factory and work in a sheltered room. It was everyone's wish to have such a life-saving piece of luck. The scale of relative luck extends even further. Even among those detachments outside the camp, in one of which I was a member, there were some units which were considered worse than others. One could envy a man who did not have to wade in deep, muddy clay on a steep slope emptying the tubs of a small field railway for twelve hours daily. Most of the daily accidents occurred on this job, and they were often fatal. In other work-parties the foremen maintained an apparently local tradition of dealing out numerous blows, which made us talk of the relative luck of not being under their command, or perhaps of being under it only temporarily. Once, by an unlucky chance, I got into such a group. If an air-raid alarm had not interrupted us after two hours, during which time the foreman had worked on me especially, making it necessary to regroup the workers afterwards, I think that I would have returned to camp on one of the sledges which carried those who had died, or were dying from exhaustion. No one can imagine the relief that the siren can bring in such a situation. Not even a boxer who has heard the bell signifying the finish of a round and who is thus saved at the last minute from the danger of a knockout? We were grateful for the smallest of mercies. We were glad when there was time to de-louse before going to bed, although in itself this was no pleasure, as it meant standing naked in an unheated hut, where icicles hung from the ceiling. But we were thankful if there was no air-raid alarm during this operation, and the lights were not switched off. If we could not do the job properly, we were kept awake half the night. The meagre pleasures of camp life provided a kind of negative happiness, freedom from suffering, as Schopenhauer put it, and even that in a relative way only. Real positive pleasures, even small ones, were very few. I remember drawing up a kind of balance sheet of pleasures one day, and finding that in many, many past weeks I had experienced only two pleasurable moments. One occurred when On returning from work, I was admitted to the cook-house after a long wait, and was assigned to the line, Filing Up to Prisoner Cook F. He stood behind one of the huge pans, and ladled soup into the bowls which were held out to him by the prisoners, who hurriedly filed past. He was the only cook who did not look at the men whose bowls he was filling, the only cook who dealt out the soup equally, regardless of recipient, and who did not make favourites of his personal friends or countrymen picking out the potatoes for them, while the others got watery soup skimmed from the top. But it is not for me to pass judgment on those prisoners who put their own people above everyone else. Who can throw a stone at a man who favors his friends, under circumstances when, sooner or later, it is a question of life or death? No man should judge, unless he asks himself in absolute honesty whether in a similar situation he might not have done the same. Long after I had resumed normal life again, that means a long time after my release from camp, somebody showed me an illustrated weekly, with photographs of prisoners lying crowded on their bunks, staring dully at a visitor. Isn't this terrible? The dreadful staring faces, everything about it. Why? I asked, for I genuinely did not understand. For at that moment I saw it all again, at five a.m., It was still pitch dark outside. I was lying on the hard boards in an earthen hut, where about seventy of us were taken care of. We were sick, and did not have to leave camp for work. We did not have to go on parade. We could lie all day in our little corner in the hut and doze, and wait for the daily distribution of bread, which, of course, was reduced for the sick, and for the daily helping of soup, watered down and also decreased in quantity. But how content we were! happy in spite of everything. While we cowered against each other to avoid any unnecessary loss of warmth, and were too lazy and disinterested to move a finger unnecessarily, we heard shrill whistles and shouts from the square where the night shift had just returned and was assembling for roll-call. The door was flung open, and the snowstorm blew into our hut. An exhausted comrade, covered with snow, stumbled inside to sit down for a few minutes. But the senior warden turned him out again. It was strictly forbidden to admit a stranger to a hut, while a check-up on the men was in progress. How sorry I was for that fellow! And how glad not to be in his skin at that moment, but instead to be sick and able to doze on in the sick quarters! What a life-saver it was to have two days there, and perhaps even two extra days after those! All this came to my mind when I saw the photographs in the magazine. When I explained, my listeners understood why I did not find the photograph so terrible. The people shown on it might not have been so unhappy after all. On my fourth day in the sick quarters, I had just been detailed to the night shift, when the chief doctor rushed in and asked me to volunteer for medical duties in another camp containing typhus patients. Against the urgent advice of my friends, and despite the fact that almost none of my colleagues offered their services, I decided to volunteer. I knew that in a working party I would die in a short time, but if I had to die there might at least be some sense in my death. I thought that it would doubtless be more to the purpose to try and help my comrades as a doctor than to vegetate or finally lose my life as the unproductive labourer that I was then. For me this was simple mathematics, not sacrifice. But secretly the warrant officer from the sanitation squad had ordered that the two doctors who had volunteered for the typhus camp should be taken care of till they left. We looked so weak that he feared that he might have two additional corpses on his hands rather than two doctors. I mentioned earlier how everything that was not connected with the immediate task of keeping oneself and one's closest friends alive lost its value. Everything was sacrificed to this end. A man's character became involved to the point that he was caught in a mental turmoil which threatened all the values he held and threw them into doubt. Under the influence of a world which no longer recognized the value of human life and human dignity, which had robbed man of his will and had made him an object to be exterminated, having planned, however, to make full use of him first, to the last ounce of his physical resources, under this influence the personal ego finally suffered a loss of values. If the man in the concentration camp did not struggle against this in a last effort to save his self-respect, he lost the feeling of being an individual, a being with a mind, with inner freedom and personal value. He thought of himself then as only a part of an enormous mass of people. His existence descended to the level of animal life. The men were herded sometimes to one place, then to another, sometimes driven together, then apart, like a flock of sheep, without a thought or a will of their own. A small but dangerous pack watched them from all sides, well versed in methods of torture and sadism. They drove the herd incessantly, backwards and forwards, with shouts, kicks, and blows. And we, the sheep, thought of two things only, how to evade the bad dogs, and how to get a little food. Just like sheep that crowd timidly into the centre of a herd, each of us tried to get into the middle of our formations. That gave one a better chance of avoiding the blows of the guards who were marching on either side and to the front and rear of our column. The central position had the added advantage of affording protection against the bitter winds. It was therefore in an attempt to save one's own skin that one literally tried to submerge into the crowd. This was done automatically in the formations. But at other times it was a very conscious effort on our part, in conformity with one of the camp's most imperative laws of self-preservation, do not be conspicuous. We tried at all times to avoid attracting the attention of the SS. There were times, of course, when it was possible and even necessary to keep away from the crowd. It is well known that an enforced community life, in which attention is paid to everything one does at all times, may result in an irresistible urge to get away, at least for a short time. The prisoner craved to be alone with himself and his thoughts. He yearned for privacy and for solitude. After my transportation to a so-called rest camp, I had the rare fortune to find solitude for about five minutes at a time. Behind the earthen hut where I worked, and in which were crowded about fifty delirious patients, There was a quiet spot in a corner of the double fence of barbed wire surrounding the camp. A tent had been improvised there, with a few poles and branches of trees, in order to shelter a half-dozen corpses, the daily death rate in the camp. There was also a shaft leading to the water-pipes. I squatted on the wooden lid of this shaft whenever my services were not needed. I just sat and looked out at the green flowering slopes, and the distant blue hills of the Bavarian landscape framed by the meshes of barbed wire. I dreamed longingly, and my thoughts wandered north and northeast in the direction of my home, but I could only see clouds. The corpses near me, crawling with lice, did not bother me. Only the steps of passing guards could rouse me from my dreams, or perhaps it would be a call to the sick-bay, or to collect a newly-arrived supply of medicine for my hut consisting of perhaps five or ten tablets of aspirin, to last for several days for fifty patients. I collected them, and then did my rounds, feeling the patient's pulses, and giving half-tablets to the serious cases. But the desperately ill received no medicine. It would not have helped, and besides, it would have deprived those for whom there was still some hope. For light cases I had nothing, except perhaps a word of encouragement. In this way I dragged myself from patient to patient, though I myself was weak and exhausted from a serious attack of typhus. Then I went back to my lonely place on the wood cover of the water-shaft. This shaft, incidentally, once saved the lives of three fellow prisoners. Shortly before liberation, mass transports were organized to go to Dachau, and these three prisoners wisely tried to avoid the trip. They climbed down the shaft, and hid there from the guards. I calmly sat on the lid, looking innocent and playing a childish game of throwing pebbles at the barbed wire. On spotting me, the guard hesitated for a moment, but then passed on. Soon I could tell the three men below that the worst danger was over. It is very difficult for an outsider to grasp how very little value was placed on human life in camp. The camp-inmate was hardened but possibly became more conscious of this complete disregard of human existence when a convoy of sick men was arranged. The emaciated bodies of the sick were thrown on two-wheeled carts, which were drawn by prisoners for many miles, often through snowstorms, to the next camp. If one of the sick men had died before the cart left, he was thrown on anyway. The list had to be correct. The list was the only thing that mattered. A man counted only because he had a prison number. One literally became a number, dead or alive. That was unimportant. The life of a number was completely irrelevant. What stood behind that number in that life mattered even less. The fate, the history, the name of the man. In the transport of sick patients that I, in my capacity as a doctor, had to accompany from one camp in Bavaria to another, there was a young prisoner whose brother was not on the list, and therefore would have to be left behind. The young man begged so long, that the camp warden decided to work an exchange, and the brother took the place of a man who, at the moment, preferred to stay behind. But the list had to be correct. That was easy. The brother just exchanged numbers with the other prisoner. As I have mentioned before, we had no documents. Everyone was lucky to own his body, which, after all, was still breathing. All else about us, that is, the rags hanging from our gaunt skeletons, was only of interest if we were assigned to a transport of sick patients. The departing Muslims were examined with unabashed curiosity, to see whether their coats or shoes were not better than one's own. After all, their fates were sealed. But those who stayed behind in camp, who were still capable of some work, had to make use of every means to improve their chances of survival. They were not sentimental. The prisoners saw themselves completely dependent on the moods of the guards, playthings of fate, and this made them even less human than the circumstances warranted. In Auschwitz I had laid down a rule for myself which proved to be a good one, and which most of my comrades later followed. I generally answered all kinds of questions truthfully, but I was silent about anything that was not expressly asked for. If I were asked my age, I gave it. If asked about my profession, I said, Doctor, but did not elaborate. The first morning in Auschwitz, an SS officer came to the parade ground. We had to fall into separate groups of prisoners, over forty years, under forty years, metal workers, mechanics, and so forth. Then we were examined for ruptures, and some prisoners had to form a new group. The group that I was in was driven to another hut, where we lined up again. After being sorted out once more, and having answered questions as to my age and profession, I was sent to another small group. Once more we were driven to another hut, and grouped differently. This continued for some time, and I became quite unhappy, finding myself among strangers who spoke unintelligible foreign languages. Then came the last selection, and I found myself back in the group that had been with me in the first hut. They had barely noticed that I had been sent from hut to hut in the meantime, but I was aware that in those few minutes fate had passed me in many different forms. When the transport of sick patients for the rest camp was organised, my name, that is, my number, was put on the list, since a few doctors were needed. But no one was convinced that the destination was really a rest camp. A few weeks previously the same transport had been prepared, Then, too, everyone had thought that it was destined for the gas-ovens. When it was announced that anyone who volunteered for the dreaded night-shift would be taken off the transport list, eighty-two prisoners volunteered immediately. A quarter of an hour later, the transport was cancelled. But the eighty-two stayed on the list for the night-shift. For the majority of them, this meant death within the next fortnight. Now the transport for the rest-camp was arranged for the second time. Again, no one knew whether this was a ruse to obtain the last bit of work from the sick, if only for fourteen days, or whether it would go to the gas-ovens or to a genuine rest-camp. The chief doctor, who had taken a liking to me, told me furtively one evening at a quarter to ten, I have made it known in the orderly room that you can still have your name crossed off the list. You may do so up till ten o'clock. I told him that this was not my way, that I had learned to let fate take its course. "'I might as well stay with my friends,' I said. There was a look of pity in his eyes, as if he knew. He shook my hand silently, as though it were a farewell, not for life, but from life. Slowly I walked back to my hut. There I found a good friend waiting for me. "'You really want to go with them?' he asked sadly. "'Yes, I am going.' Tears came to his eyes, and I tried to comfort him. Then there was something else to do, to make my will. "'Listen, Otto, if I don't get back home to my wife, and if you should see her again, then tell her that I talked of her daily, hourly. You remember. Secondly, I have loved her more than anyone. Thirdly, the short time I have been married to her outweighs everything, even all we have gone through here.' Otto, where are you now? Are you alive? What has happened to you since our last hour together? Did you find your wife again? And do you remember how I made you learn my will by heart, word for word, in spite of your childlike tears? The next morning I departed with a transport. This time it was not a ruse. We were not heading for the gas chambers, and we actually did go to a rest camp. Those who had pitied me remained in a camp where famine was to rage even more fiercely than in our new camp. They tried to save themselves, but they only sealed their own fates. Months later, after liberation, I met a friend from the old camp. He related to me how he, as camp policeman, had searched for a piece of human flesh that was missing from a pile of corpses. He confiscated it from a pot in which he found it cooking. Cannibalism had broken out. I had left just in time. Does this not bring to mind the story of death in Tehran? A rich and mighty Persian once walked in his garden with one of his servants. The servant cried that he had just encountered death, who had threatened him. He begged his master to give him his fastest horse, so that he could make haste and flee to Tehran, which he could reach that same evening. The master consented, and the servant galloped off on the horse. On returning to his house, the master himself met Death, and questioned him. "'Why did you terrify and threaten my servant?' "'I did not threaten him. I only showed surprise in still finding him here, when I planned to meet him to-night in Tehran,' said Death." The camp inmate was frightened of making decisions, and of taking any sort of initiative whatsoever. This was the result of a strong feeling that fate was one's master, and that one must not try to influence it in any way, but instead let it take its own course. In addition there was great apathy, which contributed in no small part to the feelings of the prisoner. At times lightning decisions had to be made, decisions which spelled life or death. The prisoner would have preferred to let fate make the choice for him. This escape from commitment was most apparent when a prisoner had to make the decision for or against an escape attempt. In those minutes in which he had to make up his mind—and it was always a question of minutes—he suffered the tortures of hell. Should he make the attempt to flee? Should he take the risk? I too experienced this torment. As the battle-front drew nearer, I had the opportunity to escape. A colleague of mine who had to visit huts outside the camp in the course of his medical duties wanted to escape and take me with him. Under the pretense of holding a consultation about a patient whose illness required a specialist's advice, he smuggled me out. Outside the camp, a member of a foreign resistance movement was to supply us with uniforms and documents. At the last moment there were some technical difficulties, and we had to return to camp once more. We used this opportunity to provide ourselves with provisions, a few rotten potatoes, and to look for a rucksack. We broke into an empty hut of the women's camp, which was vacant, as the women had been sent to another camp. The hut was in great disorder. It was obvious that many women had acquired supplies and fled. There were rags, straw, rotting food, and broken crockery. Some bowls were still in good condition, and would have been very valuable to us, but we decided not to take them. We knew that lately, as conditions had become desperate, they had been used not only for food, but also as wash-basins and chamber-pots. There was a strictly enforced rule against having any kind of utensil in the hut, however some people were forced to break this rule, especially the typhus patients, who were much too weak to go outside, even with help. While I acted as a screen, my friend broke into the hut and returned shortly with a rucksack, which he hid under his coat. He had seen another one inside which I was to take, so we changed places, and I went in. As I searched in the rubbish, finding the rucksack and even a toothbrush, I suddenly saw, among all the things that had been left behind, the body of a woman. I ran back to my hut to collect all my possessions, my food-bowl, a pair of torn mittens inherited from a dead typhus patient, and a few scraps of paper covered with shorthand notes, on which, as I mentioned before, I had started to reconstruct the manuscript which I lost at Auschwitz. I made a quick last round of my patients, who were lying huddled on the rotten planks of wood on either side of the huts. I came to my only countryman, who was almost dying, and whose life it had been my ambition to save in spite of his condition. I had to keep my intention to escape to myself, but my comrades seemed to guess that something was wrong. Perhaps I showed a little nervousness. In a tired voice he asked me, "'You, too, are getting out?' I denied it, but I found it difficult to avoid his sad look. After my round I returned to him. Again a hopeless look greeted me, and somehow I felt it to be an accusation. The unpleasant feeling that had gripped me as soon as I had told my friend I would escape with him became more intense. Suddenly I decided to take fate into my own hands for once.' I ran out of the hut, and told my friend that I could not go with him. As soon as I had told him with finality that I had made up my mind to stay with my patients, the unhappy feeling left me. I did not know what the following days would bring, but I had gained an inward peace that I had never experienced before. I returned to the hut, sat down on the boards at my countryman's feet, and tried to comfort him. Then I chatted with the others, trying to quiet them in their delirium. Our last day in camp arrived. As the battlefront came nearer, mass transports had taken nearly all the prisoners to other camps. The camp authorities, the capos, and the cooks had fled. On this day an order was given that the camp must be evacuated completely by sunset. Even the few remaining prisoners, the sick, a few doctors, and some nurses, would have to leave. At night the camp was to be set on fire. In the afternoon the trucks which were to collect the sick had not yet appeared. Instead the camp gates were suddenly closed, and the barbed wire closely watched, so that no one could attempt an escape. The remaining prisoners seemed to be destined to burn with the camp. For the second time my friend and I decided to escape. We had been given an order to bury three men outside the barbed wire fence. We were the only two in camp who had strength enough to do the job. Nearly all the others lay in the few huts which were still in use, prostrate with fever and delirium. We now made our plans. Along with the first body, we would smuggle out my friend's rucksack, hiding it in the old laundry tub which served as a coffin. When we took out the second body, we would also carry out my rucksack, and on the third trip we intended to make our escape. The first two trips went according to plan. After we returned... I waited while my friend tried to find a piece of bread, so that we would have something to eat during the next few days in the woods. I waited. Minutes passed. I became more and more impatient as he did not return. After three years of imprisonment, I was picturing freedom joyously, imagining how wonderful it would be to run toward the battlefront. But we did not get that far. The very moment when my friend came back, the camp gate was thrown open. A splendid, aluminium-coloured car, on which were painted large red crosses, slowly rolled onto the parade-ground. A delegate from the International Red Cross in Geneva had arrived, and the camp and its inmates were under his protection. The delegate billeted himself in a farmhouse in the vicinity, in order to be near the camp at all times in case of emergency. Who worried about escape now? Boxes with medicines were unloaded from the car, cigarettes were distributed. We were photographed, and joy reigned supreme. Now there was no need for us to risk running toward the fighting line. In our excitement we had forgotten the third body, so we carried it outside, and dropped it into the narrow grave we had dug for the three corpses. The guard who accompanied us, a relatively inoffensive man, suddenly became quite gentle. He saw that the tables might be turned, and tried to win our goodwill. He joined in the short prayers that we offered for the dead men before throwing soil over them. After the tension and excitement of the past days and hours, those last days in our race with death, the words of our prayer, asking for peace, were as fervent as any ever uttered by the human voice. And so the last day in camp passed in anticipation of freedom. But we had rejoiced too early. The Red Cross delegate had assured us that an agreement had been signed, and that the camp must not be evacuated. But that night the SS arrived with trucks, and brought an order to clear the camp. The last remaining prisoners were to be taken to a central camp, from which they would be sent to Switzerland, within forty-eight hours, to be exchanged for some prisoners of war. We scarcely recognized the SS. They were so friendly, trying to persuade us to get in the trucks without fear, telling us that we should be grateful for our good luck. Those who were strong enough crowded into the trucks, and the seriously ill and feeble were lifted up with difficulty. My friend and I, we did not hide our rucksacks now, stood in the last group, from which thirteen would be chosen for the next to last truck. The chief doctor counted out the requisite number, but he omitted the two of us. The thirteen were loaded into the truck, and we had to stay behind. Surprised, very annoyed and disappointed, we blamed the chief doctor, who excused himself by saying that he had been tired and distracted. He said that he had thought we still intended to escape. Impatiently we sat down, keeping our rucksacks on our backs, and waited with the few remaining prisoners for the last truck. We had to wait a long time. Finally, we lay down on the mattresses of the deserted guard-room, exhausted by the excitement of the last few hours and days, during which we had fluctuated continuously between hope and despair. We slept in our clothes and shoes, ready for the journey. The noise of rifles and cannons woke us. The flashes of tracer bullets and gunshots entered the hut. The chief doctor dashed in and ordered us to take cover on the floor, One prisoner jumped on my stomach from the bed above me, and with his shoes on. That awakened me all right. Then we grasped what was happening. The battlefront had reached us. The shooting decreased, and morning dawned. Outside on the pole at the camp gate, a white flag floated in the wind. Many weeks later, we found out that even in those last hours, fate had toyed with us few remaining prisoners. We found out just how uncertain human decisions are, especially in matters of life and death. I was confronted with photographs which had been taken in a small camp not far from ours. Our friends, who had thought they were travelling to freedom that night, had been taken in the trucks to this camp, and there they were locked in the huts and burned to death. Their partially charred bodies were recognisable on the photograph. I thought again of death in Tehran. Apart from its role as a defensive mechanism, The prisoner's apathy was also the result of other factors. Hunger and lack of sleep contributed to it, as they do in normal life also, and to the general irritability, which was another characteristic of the prisoner's mental state. The lack of sleep was due partly to the pestering of vermin which infested the terribly overcrowded huts because of the general lack of hygiene and sanitation. The fact that we had neither nicotine nor caffeine also contributed to the state of apathy and irritability. Besides these physical causes, there were mental ones, in the form of certain complexes. The majority of prisoners suffered from a kind of inferiority complex. We all had once been, or had fancied ourselves to be, somebody. Now we were treated like complete non-entities. The consciousness of one's inner value is anchored in higher, more spiritual things, and cannot be shaken by camp life. But how many free men, let alone prisoners, possess it? Without consciously thinking about it, the average prisoner felt himself utterly degraded. This became obvious when one observed the contrasts offered by the singular sociological structure of the camp. The more prominent prisoners, the capos, the cooks, the storekeepers, and the camp policemen, did not, as a rule, feel degraded at all, like the majority of prisoners, but on the contrary, promoted. Some even developed miniature delusions of grandeur. The mental reaction of the envious and grumbling majority toward this favoured minority found expression in several ways, sometimes in jokes. For instance, I heard one prisoner talk to another about a capo, saying, "'Imagine! I knew that man when he was only the president of a large bank! Isn't it fortunate that he has risen so far in the world!' Whenever the degraded majority and the promoted minority came into conflict, and there were plenty of opportunities for this, starting with the distribution of food, the results were explosive. Therefore, the general irritability, whose physical causes were discussed above, became most intense when these mental tensions were added. It is not surprising that this tension often ended in a general fight. Since the prisoner continually witnessed scenes of beatings, the impulse toward violence was increased. I myself felt my fists clench when anger came over me while I was famished and tired. I was usually very tired, since we had to stoke our stove, which we were allowed to keep in our hut for the typhus patients, throughout the nights. However, some of the most idyllic hours I have ever spent were in the middle of the night when all the others were delirious or sleeping. I could lie stretched out in front of the stove, and roast a few pilfered potatoes in a fire made from stolen charcoal. But the following day I always felt even more tired, insensitive, and irritable. While I was working as a doctor in the typhus block, I also had to take the place of the senior block warden who was ill. Therefore I was responsible to the camp authority for keeping the hut clean, if clean can be used to describe such a condition. The pretense at inspection to which the hut was frequently submitted was more for the purpose of torture than of hygiene. More food and a few drugs would have helped, but the only concern of the inspectors was whether a piece of straw was left in the center corridor, or whether the dirty, ragged, and verminous blankets of the patients were tucked in neatly at their feet. As to the fate of the inmates, they were quite unconcerned. If I reported smartly, whipping my prison cap from my shorn head and clicking my heels, hut number six stroke nine, fifty-two patients, two nursing orderlies, and one doctor, they were satisfied, and then they would leave. But until they arrived—often they were hours later than announced, and sometimes did not come at all—I was forced to keep straightening blankets, picking up bits of straw which fell from the bunks, and shouting at the poor devils who tossed in their beds and threatened to upset all my efforts of tidiness and cleanliness. Apathy was particularly increased among the feverish patients, so that they did not react at all unless they were shouted at. Even this failed at times, and then it took tremendous self-control not to strike them. For one's own irritability took on enormous proportions in the face of the other's apathy, and especially in the face of the danger, that is, the approaching inspection, which was caused by it. In attempting this psychological presentation and a psychopathological explanation of the typical characteristics of a concentration-camp inmate, I may give the impression part two logotherapy in a nutshell this part which has been revised and updated first appeared as basic concepts of logotherapy in the 1962 edition of man's search for meaning readers of my short autobiographical story usually ask for a fuller and more direct explanation of my therapeutic doctrine Accordingly, I added a brief section on logotherapy to the original edition of From Death Camp to Existentialism. But that was not enough, and I have been besieged by requests for a more extended treatment. Therefore, in the present edition, I have completely rewritten and considerably expanded my account. The assignment was not easy. To convey to the reader within a short space all the material which required twenty volumes in German is an almost hopeless task. I am reminded of the American doctor who once turned up in my office in Vienna, and asked me, "'Now, doctor, are you a psychoanalyst?' Whereupon I replied, "'Not exactly a psychoanalyst. Let's say a psychotherapist.' Then he continued, questioning me, "'What school do you stand for?' I answered, "'It is my own theory. I call it logotherapy.' "'Can you tell me in one sentence what is meant by logotherapy?' he asked. At least, what is the difference between psychoanalysis and logotherapy? Yes, I said. But in the first place, can you tell me in one sentence what you think the essence of psychoanalysis is? This was his answer. During psychoanalysis, the patient must lie down on a couch and tell you things which sometimes are very disagreeable to tell. Whereupon I immediately retorted with the following improvisation. Now, in logotherapy... The patient may remain sitting erect, but he must hear things which sometimes are very disagreeable to hear. Of course, this was meant facetiously, and not as a capsule version of logotherapy. However, there is something in it, inasmuch as logotherapy, in comparison with psychoanalysis, is a method less retrospective and less introspective. Logotherapy focuses rather on the future— that is to say, on the meanings to be fulfilled by the patient in his future. Logotherapy, indeed, is a meaning-centered psychotherapy. At the same time, logotherapy defocuses all the vicious circle formations and feedback mechanisms which play such a great role in the development of neuroses. Thus the typical self-centeredness of the neurotic is broken up instead of being continually fostered and reinforced. To be sure. This kind of statement is an oversimplification, yet in logotherapy the patient is actually confronted with and reoriented toward the meaning of his life. And to make him aware of this meaning can contribute much to his ability to overcome his neurosis. Let me explain why I have employed the term logotherapy as the name for my theory. Logos is a Greek word which denotes meaning. Logotherapy, or as it has been called by some authors, The third Viennese school of psychotherapy focuses on the meaning of human existence as well as on man's search for such a meaning. According to logotherapy, this striving to find a meaning in one's life is the primary motivational force in man. That is why I speak of a will to meaning, in contrast to the pleasure principle, or, as we could also term it, the will to pleasure, on which Freudian psychoanalysis is centred as well as in contrast to the will to power on which Adlerian psychology, using the term striving for superiority, is focused. The Will to Meaning Man's search for meaning is the primary motivation in his life and not a secondary rationalization of instinctual drives. This meaning is unique and specific in that it must and can be fulfilled by him alone. Only then does it achieve a significance which will satisfy his own will to meaning. There are some authors who contend that meanings and values are nothing but defence mechanisms, reaction formations, and sublimations. But as for myself, I would not be willing to live merely for the sake of my defence mechanisms, nor would I be ready to die merely for the sake of my reaction formations. Man, however, is able to live and even to die for the sake of his ideals and values. A public opinion poll was conducted a few years ago in France. The results showed that 89% of the people polled admitted that man needs something for the sake of which to live. Moreover, 61% conceded that there was something or someone in their own lives for whose sake they were even ready to die. I repeated this poll at my hospital department in Vienna, among both the patients and the personnel, and the outcome was practically the same as among the thousands of people screened in France. The difference was only two per cent. Another statistical survey of 7,948 students at 48 colleges was conducted by social scientists from Johns Hopkins University. Their preliminary report is part of a two-year study sponsored by the National Institute of Mental Health asked what they considered very important to them now, 16% of the students checked, making a lot of money. 78% said their first goal was, finding a purpose and meaning to my life. Of course, there may be some cases in which an individual's concern with values is really a camouflage of hidden inner conflicts. But if so, they represent the exceptions from the rule, rather than the rule itself. In these cases, we have actually to deal with pseudo-values, and as such they have to be unmasked. Unmasking, however, should stop as soon as one is confronted with what is authentic and genuine in man, for example, man's desire for a life that is as meaningful as possible. If it does not stop then, the only thing that the unmasking psychologist really unmasks is his own hidden motive namely his unconscious need to debase and depreciate what is genuine, what is genuinely human in man. Existential Frustration Man's will to meaning can also be frustrated, in which case logotherapy speaks of existential frustration. The term existential may be used in three ways, to refer to one existence itself, that is the specifically human mode of being two the meaning of existence and three the striving to find a concrete meaning in personal existence that is to say the will to meaning existential frustration can also result in neuroses for this type of neuroses logotherapy has coined the term noogenic neuroses in contrast to neuroses in the traditional sense of the word That is psychogenic neuroses. Noogenic neuroses have their origin not in the psychological, but rather in the noological, from the Greek nos, meaning mind, dimension of human existence. This is another logotherapeutic term which denotes anything pertaining to the specifically human dimension. Noogenic neuroses. Noogenic neuroses do not emerge from conflicts between drives and instincts, but rather from existential problems. Among such problems, the frustration of the will to meaning plays a large role. It is obvious that in noogenic cases the appropriate and adequate therapy is not psychotherapy in general, but rather logotherapy, a therapy, that is, which dares to enter the specifically human dimension. Let me quote the following instance. A high-ranking American diplomat came to my office in Vienna in order to continue psychoanalytic treatment which he had begun five years previously with an analyst in New York. At the outset I asked him why he thought he should be analyzed, why his analysis had been started in the first place. It turned out that the patient was discontented with his career, and found it most difficult to comply with American foreign policy. His analyst, however, had told him again and again that he should try to reconcile himself with his father, because the government of the United States, as well as his superiors, were nothing but father images, and, consequently, his dissatisfaction with his job was due to the hatred he unconsciously harboured toward his father. Through an analysis lasting five years, the patient had been prompted more and more to accept his analyst's interpretations until he finally was unable to see the forest of reality for the trees of symbols and images. After a few interviews, it was clear that his will to meaning was frustrated by his vocation, and he actually longed to be engaged in some other kind of work. As there was no reason for not giving up his profession and embarking on a different one, he did so, with most gratifying results. He has remained contented in this new occupation for over five years, as he recently reported. I doubt that, in this case, I was dealing with a neurotic condition at all, and that is why I thought that he did not need any psychotherapy, nor even logotherapy, for the simple reason that he was not actually a patient. Not every conflict is necessarily neurotic. Some amount of conflict is normal and healthy. In a similar sense, suffering is not always a pathological phenomenon. Rather than being a symptom of neurosis, suffering may well be a human achievement especially if the suffering grows out of existential frustration. I would strictly deny that one's search for a meaning to his existence, or even his doubt of it, in every case is derived from, or results in, any disease. Existential frustration is in itself neither pathological nor pathogenic. A man's concern, even his despair over the worthwhileness of life, is an existential distress, but by no means a mental disease. It may well be that interpreting the first in terms of the latter motivates a doctor to bury his patient's existential despair under a heap of tranquilizing drugs. It is his task, rather, to pilot the patient through his existential crisis of growth and development. Logotherapy regards its assignment as that of assisting the patient to find meaning in his life. Inasmuch as Logotherapy makes him aware of the hidden Logos of his existence, it is an analytical process. To this extent, Logotherapy resembles psychoanalysis. However, in Logotherapy's attempt to make something conscious again, it does not restrict its activity to instinctual facts within the individual's unconscious, but also cares for existential realities, such as the potential meaning of his existence to be fulfilled as well as his will to meaning. Any analysis, however, even when it refrains from including the noological dimension in its therapeutic process, tries to make the patient aware of what he actually longs for in the depth of his being. Logotherapy deviates from psychoanalysis insofar as it considers man a being whose main concern consists in fulfilling a meaning rather than in the mere gratification and satisfaction of drives and instincts, or in merely reconciling the conflicting claims of id, ego, and superego, or in the mere adaptation and adjustment to society and environment. No Dynamics To be sure, man's search for meaning may arouse inner tension rather than inner equilibrium. However, precisely such tension is an indispensable prerequisite of mental health. There is nothing in the world, I venture to say, that would so effectively help one to survive even the worst conditions as the knowledge that there is a meaning in one's life. There is much wisdom in the words of Nietzsche, he who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. I can see in these words a motto which holds true for any psychotherapy. In the Nazi concentration camps, one could have witnessed that those who knew that there was a task waiting for them to fulfill were most apt to survive. The same conclusion has since been reached by other authors of books on concentration camps, and also by psychiatric investigations into Japanese, North Korean, and North Vietnamese prisoner-of-war camps. As for myself, when I was taken to the concentration camp of Auschwitz, a manuscript of mine ready for publication was confiscated. Footnote It was the first version of my first book, the English translation of which was published by Alfred A. Knopf, New York, in 1955, under the title The Doctor and the Soul, An Introduction to Logotherapy. Certainly my deep desire to write this manuscript anew helped me to survive the rigours of the camps I was in. For instance, when in a camp in Bavaria I fell ill with typhus fever, I jotted down on little scraps of paper. Many notes intended to enable me to rewrite the manuscript should I live to the day of liberation. I am sure that this reconstruction of my lost manuscript in the dark barracks of a Bavarian concentration camp assisted me in overcoming the danger of cardiovascular collapse. Thus it can be seen that mental health is based on a certain degree of tension, the tension between what one has already achieved and what one still ought to accomplish or the gap between what one is and what one should become. Such a tension is inherent in the human being, and therefore is indispensable to mental well-being. We should not, then, be hesitant about challenging man with a potential meaning for him to fulfil. It is only thus that we evoke his will to meaning from its state of latency. I consider it a dangerous misconception of mental hygiene to assume that what man needs in the first place is equilibrium, or as it is called in biology homeostasis that is a tensionless state what man actually needs is not a tensionless state but rather the striving and struggling for a worthwhile goal a freely chosen task what he needs is not the discharge of tension at any cost but the call of a potential meaning waiting to be fulfilled by him what man needs is not homeostasis but what i call no dynamics That is, the existential dynamics in a polar field of tension, where one pole is represented by a meaning that is to be fulfilled, and the other pole by the man who has to fulfill it. And one should not think that this holds true only for normal conditions. In neurotic individuals, it is even more valid. If architects want to strengthen a decrepit arch, they increase the load which is laid upon it, for thereby the parts are joined more firmly together. So if therapists wish to foster their patients' mental health, they should not be afraid to create a sound amount of tension through a reorientation toward the meaning of one's life. Having shown the beneficial impact of meaning orientation, I turn to the detrimental influence of that feeling of which so many patients complain today, namely the feeling of the total and ultimate meaninglessness of their lives. They lack the awareness of a meaning worth living for, they are haunted by the experience of their inner emptiness, a void within themselves. They are caught in that situation which I have called the existential vacuum. The existential vacuum. The existential vacuum is a widespread phenomenon of the twentieth century. This is understandable. It may be due to a twofold loss which man has had to undergo since he became a truly human being. At the beginning of human history, man lost some of the basic animal instincts in which an animal's behaviour is embedded and by which it is secured. Such security, like paradise, is closed to man forever. Man has to make choices. In addition to this, however, man has suffered another loss in his more recent development, inasmuch as the traditions which buttressed his behaviour are now rapidly diminishing. No instinct tells him what he has to do and no tradition tells him what he ought to do. Sometimes he does not even know what he wishes to do. Instead, he either wishes to do what other people do, conformism, or he does what other people wish him to do, totalitarianism. A statistical survey recently revealed that among my European students, 25% showed a more or less marked degree of existential vacuum. Among my American students, it was not 25 but 60%. The existential vacuum manifests itself mainly in a state of boredom. Now we can understand Schopenhauer when he said that mankind was apparently doomed to vacillate eternally between the two extremes of distress and boredom. In actual fact, boredom is now causing and certainly bringing to psychiatrists more problems to solve than distress, and these problems are growing increasingly crucial for progressive automation will probably lead to an enormous increase in the leisure hours available to the average worker. The pity of it is that many of these will not know what to do with all their newly acquired free time. Let us consider, for instance, Sunday neurosis, that kind of depression which afflicts people who become aware of the lack of content in their lives when the rush of the busy week is over, and the void within themselves becomes manifest. Not a few cases of suicide can be traced back to this existential vacuum. Such widespread phenomena as depression, aggression, and addiction are not understandable unless we recognize the existential vacuum underlying them. This is also true of the crises of pensioners and aging people. Moreover, there are various masks and guises under which the existential vacuum appears. Sometimes the frustrated will to meaning is vicariously compensated for by a will to power, including the most primitive form of the will to power, the will to money. In other cases, the place of frustrated will to meaning is taken by the will to pleasure. That is why existential frustration often eventuates in sexual compensation. We can observe in such cases that the sexual libido becomes rampant in the existential vacuum. An analogous event occurs in neurotic cases. There are certain types of feedback mechanisms and vicious circle formations, which I will touch upon later. One can observe again and again, however, that this symptomatology has invaded an existential vacuum wherein it then continues to flourish. In such patients, what we have to deal with is not a noogenic neurosis. However, we will never succeed in having the patient overcome his condition if we have not supplemented the psychotherapeutic treatment with logotherapy, for by filling the existential vacuum the patient will be prevented from suffering further relapses. Therefore logotherapy is indicated not only in noogenic cases as pointed out above, but also in psychogenic cases, and sometimes even the somatogenic pseudo-neuroses. Viewed in this light, A statement once made by Magda B. Arnold is justified. Every therapy must in some way, no matter how restricted, also be logotherapy. Magda B. Arnold and John A. Gasson, The Human Person, Ronald Press, New York, 1954, page 618. Let us now consider what we can do if a patient asks what the meaning of his life is. THE MEANING OF LIFE I doubt whether a doctor can answer this question in general terms, for the meaning of life differs from man to man, from day to day, and from hour to hour. What matters, therefore, is not the meaning of life in general, but rather the specific meaning of a person's life at a given moment. To put the question in general terms would be comparable to the question posed to a chess champion. Tell me, Master, what is the best move in the world? There simply is no such thing as the best or even a good move, apart from a particular situation in a game, and the particular personality of one's opponent. The same holds for human existence. One should not search for an abstract meaning of life. Everyone has his own specific vocation or mission in life to carry out a concrete assignment which demands fulfilment. Therein he cannot be replaced, nor can his life be repeated thus everyone's task is as unique as his specific opportunity to implement it as each situation in life represents a challenge to man and presents a problem for him to solve the question of the meaning of life may actually be reversed ultimately man should not ask what the meaning of his life is but rather he must recognize that it is he who is asked in a word each man is questioned by life and he can only answer to life by answering for his own life. To life he can only respond by being responsible. Thus, logotherapy sees in responsibleness the very essence of human existence. The Essence of Existence This emphasis on responsibleness is reflected in the categorical imperative of logotherapy, which is, live as if you were living already for the second time, and as if you had acted the first time as wrongly as you are about to act now. It seems to me that there is nothing which would stimulate a man's sense of responsibleness more than this maxim, which invites him to imagine, first, that the present is past, and second, that the past may yet be changed and amended. Such a precept confronts him with life's finiteness, as well as the finality of what he makes out of both his life and himself. Logotherapy tries to make the patient fully aware of his own responsibleness. Therefore it must leave to him the option for what, to what, or to whom he understands himself to be responsible. That is why a logotherapist is the least tempted of all psychotherapists to impose value judgments on his patients, for he will never permit the patient to pass to the doctor the responsibility of judging. It is, therefore, up to the patient to decide whether he should interpret his life task as being responsible to society or to his own conscience. There are people, however, who do not interpret their own lives merely in terms of a task assigned to them, but also in terms of the taskmaster who has assigned it to them. Logotherapy is neither teaching nor preaching. It is as far removed from logical reasoning as it is from moral exhortation. To put it figuratively, The role played by a logotherapist is that of an eye specialist, rather than that of a painter. A painter tries to convey to us a picture of the world as he sees it. An ophthalmologist tries to enable us to see the world as it really is. The logotherapist's role consists of widening and broadening the visual field of the patient, so that the whole spectrum of potential meaning becomes conscious and visible to him. By declaring that man is responsible and must actualize the potential meaning of his life, I wish to stress that the true meaning of life is to be discovered in the world, rather than within man or his own psyche, as though it were a closed system. I have termed this constitutive characteristic the self-transcendence of human existence. It denotes the fact that being human always points and is directed to something or someone other than oneself. Be it a meaning to fulfill or another human being to encounter. The more one forgets himself, by giving himself to a cause to serve or another person to love, the more human he is and the more he actualizes himself. What is called self-actualization is not an attainable aim at all, for the simple reason that the more one would strive for it, the more he would miss it. In other words, self-actualization is possible only as a side effect. Of self-transcendence. Thus far we have shown that the meaning of life always changes, but that it never ceases to be. According to logotherapy, we can discover this meaning in life in three different ways—one, by creating a work or doing a deed, two, by experiencing something or encountering someone, and three, by the attitude we take toward unavoidable suffering. The first, the way of achievement or accomplishment, is quite obvious. The second and third need further elaboration. The second way of finding a meaning in life is by experiencing something, such as goodness, truth, and beauty, by experiencing nature and culture, or, last but not least, by experiencing another human being in his very uniqueness, by loving him. THE MEANING OF LOVE Love is the only way to grasp another human being in the innermost core of his personality. No one can become fully aware of the very essence of another human being unless he loves him. By his love he is enabled to see the essential traits and features in the beloved person, and even more he sees that which is potential in him, which is not yet actualized, but yet ought to be actualized. Furthermore, by his love, The loving person enables the beloved person to actualize these potentialities. By making him aware of what he can be, and of what he should become, he makes these potentialities come true. In logotherapy, love is not interpreted as a mere epiphenomenon, a phenomenon that occurs as the result of a primary phenomenon, of sexual drives and instincts in the sense of a so-called sublimation. Love is as primary a phenomenon as sex. Normally sex is a mode of expression for love. Sex is justified, even sanctified, as soon as, but only as long as, it is a vehicle of love. Thus love is not understood as a mere side-effect of sex, rather sex is a way of expressing the experience of that ultimate togetherness which is called love. The third way of finding a meaning in life is by suffering. THE MEANING OF SUFFERING We must never forget that we may also find meaning in life even when confronted with a hopeless situation, when facing a fate that cannot be changed. For what then matters is to bear witness to the uniquely human potential at its best, which is to transform a personal tragedy into a triumph, to turn one's predicament into a human achievement. When we are no longer able to change a situation, Just think of an incurable disease, such as inoperable cancer. We are challenged to change ourselves. Let me cite a clear-cut example. Once an elderly general practitioner consulted me because of his severe depression. He could not overcome the loss of his wife, who had died two years before, and whom he had loved above all else. Now, how could I help him? What should I tell him? Well, I refrained from telling him anything, but instead confronted him with the question, "'What would have happened, doctor, if you had died first, and your wife would have had to survive you?' "'Oh,' he said, "'for her this would have been terrible. How she would have suffered!' Whereupon I replied, "'You see, doctor, such a suffering has been spared her, and it was you who have spared her this suffering. To be sure, at the price that now you have to survive and mourn her.' He said no word, but shook my hand, and calmly left my office. In some way, suffering ceases to be suffering at the moment it finds a meaning, such as the meaning of a sacrifice. Of course, this was no therapy in the proper sense, since, first, his despair was no disease, and second, I could not change his fate, I could not revive his wife. But in that moment I did succeed in changing his attitude toward his unalterable fate, inasmuch as from that time on he could at least see a meaning in his suffering. It is one of the basic tenets of logotherapy that man's main concern is not to gain pleasure or to avoid pain, but rather to see a meaning in his life. That is why man is even ready to suffer, on the condition to be sure that his suffering has a meaning. But let me make it perfectly clear that in no way is suffering necessary to find meaning. I only insist that meaning is possible even in spite of suffering, provided certainly that the suffering is unavoidable. If it were avoidable, however, the meaningful thing to do would be to remove its cause, be it psychological, biological, or political. To suffer unnecessarily is masochistic rather than heroic. Edith Weisskopf Jolson, before her death professor of psychology at the University of Georgia, contended in her article on logotherapy that Our current mental hygiene philosophy stresses the idea that people ought to be happy, that unhappiness is a symptom of maladjustment. Such a value system might be responsible for the fact that the burden of unavoidable unhappiness is increased by unhappiness about being unhappy. Some comments on a Viennese school of psychiatry, the Journal of Abnormal and Social Psychology, 51, 1955, pages 701 to 3. And in another paper she expressed the hope that logotherapy may help counteract certain unhealthy trends in the present-day culture of the United States, where the incurable sufferer is given very little opportunity to be proud of his suffering, and to consider it ennobling rather than degrading, so that he is not only unhappy, but also ashamed of being unhappy. Logotherapy and Existential Analysis Acta Psychotherapeutica, 6, 1958 Pages 193-204 to 204. There are situations in which one is cut off from the opportunity to do one's work, or to enjoy one's life. But what never can be ruled out is the unavoidability of suffering. In accepting this challenge to suffer bravely, life has a meaning up to the last moment, and it retains this meaning literally to the end. In other words, life's meaning is an unconditional one for it even includes the potential meaning of unavoidable suffering. Let me recall that which was perhaps the deepest experience I had in the concentration camp. The odds of surviving the camp were no more than one in twenty-eight, as can easily be verified by exact statistics. It did not even seem possible, let alone probable, that the manuscript of my first book, which I had hidden in my coat when I arrived at Auschwitz, would ever be rescued. Thus I had to undergo and to overcome the loss of my mental child. And now it seemed as if nothing and no one would survive me, neither a physical nor a mental child of my own. So I found myself confronted with the question whether, under such circumstances, my life was ultimately void of any meaning. Not yet did I notice that an answer to this question, with which I was wrestling so passionately, was already in store for me and that soon thereafter this answer would be given to me. This was the case when I had to surrender my clothes, and in turn inherited the worn-out rags of an inmate who had already been sent to the gas-chamber immediately after his arrival at the Auschwitz railway station. Instead of the many pages of my manuscript, I found in a pocket of the newly acquired coat one single page torn out of a Hebrew prayer-book, containing the most important Jewish prayer, Shema Yisrael. How should I have interpreted such a coincidence, other than as a challenge to live my thoughts instead of merely putting them on paper? A bit later, I remember, it seemed to me that I would die in the near future. In this critical situation, however, my concern was different from that of most of my comrades. Their question was, Will we survive the camp? For if not, all this suffering has no meaning. The question which beset me was, Has all this suffering, this dying around us, a meaning? For if not, then ultimately there is no meaning to survival, for a life whose meaning depends upon such a happenstance, as whether one escapes or not, ultimately would not be worth living at all. Metaclinical Problems More and more a psychiatrist is approached today by patients who confront him with human problems rather than neurotic symptoms. Some of the people who nowadays call on a psychiatrist would have seen a pastor, priest, or rabbi in former days. Now they often refuse to be handed over to a clergyman, and instead confront the doctor with questions such as, What is the meaning of my life? A Logodrama I should like to cite the following instance. Once the mother of a boy who had died at the age of eleven years was admitted to my hospital department after a suicide attempt. Dr. Kurt Kochurek invited her to join a therapeutic group, and it happened that I stepped into the room where he was conducting a psychodrama. She was telling her story. At the death of her boy she was left alone with another, older son, who was crippled, suffering from the effects of infantile paralysis. The poor boy had to be moved around in a wheelchair. His mother, however, rebelled against her fate. But when she tried to commit suicide together with him, it was the crippled son who prevented her from doing so. He liked living. For him, life had remained meaningful. Why was it not so for his mother? How could her life still have a meaning, and how could we help her to become aware of it? Improvising, I participated in the discussion, and questioned another woman in the group. I asked her how old she was, and she answered, Thirty. I replied, No, you are not thirty, but instead eighty and lying on your deathbed. And now you are looking back on your life, a life which was childless, but full of financial success and social prestige. And then I invited her to imagine what she would feel in this situation. What will you think of it? WHAT WILL YOU SAY TO YOURSELF? LET ME QUOTE WHAT SHE ACTUALLY SAID FROM A TAPE WHICH WAS RECORDED DURING THAT SESSION. OH, I MARRIED A MILLIONAIRE. I HAD AN EASY LIFE, FULL OF WEALTH, AND I LIVED IT UP. I FLIRTED WITH MEN. I TEASED THEM. BUT NOW I AM EIGHTY. I HAVE NO CHILDREN OF MY OWN. LOOKING BACK AS AN OLD WOMAN, I CANNOT SEE WHAT ALL THAT WAS FOR. ACTUALLY, I MUST SAY, MY LIFE WAS A FAILURE. I then invited the mother of the handicapped son to imagine herself similarly looking back over her life. Let us listen to what she had to say, as recorded on the tape. I wish to have children, and this wish has been granted to me. One boy died. The other, however, the crippled one, would have been sent to an institution if I had not taken over his care. Though he is crippled and helpless, he is, after all, my boy, and so I have made a fuller life possible for him. I have made a better human being out of my son. At this moment, there was an outburst of tears, and, crying, she continued, As for myself, I can look back peacefully on my life, for I can say my life was full of meaning, and I have tried hard to fulfil it. I have done my best, I have done the best for my son. My life was no failure. Viewing her life as if from her deathbed, she had suddenly been able to see a meaning in it, a meaning which even included all of her sufferings. By the same token, however, it had become clear as well that a life of short duration, like that, for example, of her dead boy, could be so rich in joy and love that it could contain more meaning than a life lasting eighty years. After a while I proceeded to another question, this time addressing myself to the whole group. The question was whether an ape, which was being used to develop poliomyelitis serum, and for this reason punctured again and again, would ever be able to grasp the meaning of its suffering. Unanimously, the group replied that of course it would not. With its limited intelligence, it could not enter into the world of man, that is, the only world in which the meaning of its suffering would be understandable. Then I pushed forward with the following question. And what about man? Are you sure that the human world is a terminal point in the evolution of the cosmos? Is it not conceivable that there is still another dimension, a world beyond man's world, a world in which the question of an ultimate meaning of human suffering would find an answer? THE SUPER-MEANING This ultimate meaning necessarily exceeds and surpasses the finite intellectual capacities of man. In Logotherapy we speak in this context of a super-meaning. What is demanded of man is not, as some existential philosophers teach, to endure the meaninglessness of life, but rather to bear his incapacity to grasp its unconditional meaningfulness in rational terms. Logos is deeper than logic. A psychiatrist who goes beyond the concept of the super-meaning will sooner or later be embarrassed by his patients just as I was when my daughter, at about six years of age, asked me the question, "'Why do we speak of the Good Lord?' Whereupon I said, "'Some weeks ago you were suffering from measles, and then the Good Lord sent you full recovery.' However, the little girl was not content. She retorted, "'Well, but please, Daddy, do not forget. In the first place, he had sent me the measles.' However, when a patient stands on the firm ground of religious belief, there can be no objection to making use of the therapeutic effect of his religious convictions, and thereby drawing upon his spiritual resources. In order to do so, the psychiatrist may put himself in the place of the patient. That is exactly what I did once, for instance, when a rabbi from Eastern Europe turned to me and told me his story. He had lost his first wife and their six children in the concentration camp of Auschwitz, where they were gassed, and now it turned out that his second wife was sterile. I observed that procreation is not the only meaning of life, for then life in itself would become meaningless, and something which in itself is meaningless cannot be rendered meaningful merely by its perpetuation. However, the rabbi evaluated his plight as an orthodox Jew in terms of despair, that there was no son of his own who would ever say, Kaddish, a prayer for the dead, for him after his death. But I would not give up. I made a last attempt to help him by inquiring whether he did not hope to see his children again in heaven. However, my question was followed by an outburst of tears, and now the true reason for his despair came to the fore. He explained that his children, since they died as innocent martyrs, kiddush basbem, that is, for the sanctification of God's name, were thus found worthy of the highest place in heaven. But as for himself, he could not expect, as an old sinful man, to be assigned the same place. I did not give up, but retorted, Is it not conceivable, Rabbi, that precisely this was the meaning of your surviving your children, that you may be purified through these years of suffering, so that finally you too, though not innocent like your children, may become worthy of joining them in heaven? Is it not written in the Psalms that God preserves all your tears? Thou hast kept count of my tossings, put thou my tears in thy bottle, are they not in thy book? Psalm 56, 8. So perhaps none of your sufferings were in vain. For the first time in many years he found relief from his suffering through the new point of view which I was able to open up to him. Life's Transitoriness Those things which seem to take meaning away from human life include not only suffering, but dying as well. I never tire of saying that the only really transitory aspects of life are the potentialities. But as soon as they are actualized, they are rendered realities at that very moment. They are saved and delivered into the past, wherein they are rescued and preserved from transitoriness. For in the past nothing is irretrievably lost, but everything irrevocably stored. Thus the transitoriness of our existence in no way makes it meaningless, but it does constitute our responsibleness, for everything hinges upon our realizing the essentially transitory possibilities. Man constantly makes his choice concerning the mass of present potentialities, which of these will be condemned to non-being and which will be actualized, which choice will be made in actuality once and forever, an immortal footprint in the sands of time. At any moment, man must decide, for better or for worse, what will be the monument of his existence. Usually, to be sure, man considers only the stubble field of transitoriness, and overlooks the full granaries of the past, wherein he had salvaged once and for all his deeds, his joys, and also his sufferings. Nothing can be undone, and nothing can be done away with. I should say, having been, is the surest kind of being. Logotherapy keeping in mind the essential transitoriness of human existence, is not pessimistic, but rather activistic. To express this point figuratively, we might say, the pessimist resembles a man who observes with fear and sadness that his wall-calendar, from which he daily tears a sheet, grows thinner with each passing day. On the other hand, the person who attacks the problems of life actively is like a man who removes each successive leaf from his calendar and files it neatly and carefully away with its predecessors, after first having jotted down a few diary notes on the back. He can reflect with pride and joy on all the richness set down in these notes, on all the life he has already lived to the fullest. What will it matter to him if he notices that he is growing old? Has he any reason to envy the young people whom he sees, or wax nostalgic over his own lost youth? What reasons has he to envy a young person? for the possibilities that a young person has, the future which is in store for him. No, thank you, he will think. Instead of possibilities, I have realities in my past. Not only the reality of work done, and of love loved, but of sufferings bravely suffered. These sufferings are even the things of which I am most proud, though these are things which cannot inspire envy. Logotherapy as a Technique A realistic fear, like the fear of death, cannot be tranquilized away by its psychodynamic interpretation. On the other hand, a neurotic fear, such as agoraphobia, cannot be cured by philosophical understanding. However, logotherapy has developed a special technique to handle such cases, too. To understand what is going on whenever this technique is used, we take as a starting point a condition which is frequently observed in neurotic individuals, namely, Anticipatory anxiety. It is characteristic of this fear that it produces precisely that of which the patient is afraid. An individual, for example, who is afraid of blushing when he enters a large room and faces many people will actually be more prone to blush under these circumstances. In this context, one might amend the saying, The wish is father to the thought, to, The fear is mother of the event. Ironically enough, In the same way that fear brings to pass what one is afraid of, likewise a forced intention makes impossible what one forcibly wishes. This excessive intention, or hyper-intention, as I call it, can be observed particularly in cases of sexual neurosis. The more a man tries to demonstrate his sexual potency, or a woman her ability to experience orgasm, the less they are able to succeed. Pleasure is, and must remain, a side-effect or by-product and is destroyed and spoiled to the degree to which it is made a goal in itself. In addition to excessive intention, as described above, excessive attention, or hyper-reflection, as it is called in logotherapy, may also be pathogenic, that is, lead to sickness. The following clinical report will indicate what I mean. A young woman came to me complaining of being frigid. The case history showed that in her childhood she had been sexually abused by her father. However, it had not been this traumatic experience in itself which had eventuated her sexual neurosis, as could easily be evidenced. For it turned out that, through reading popular psychoanalytic literature, the patient had lived constantly with a fearful expectation of the toll which her traumatic experience would some day take. This anticipatory anxiety resulted both in excessive intention to confirm her femininity, and excessive attention centred upon herself rather than upon her partner. This was enough to incapacitate the patient for the peak experience of sexual pleasure, since the orgasm was made an object of intention and an object of attention as well, instead of remaining an unintended effect of unreflected dedication and surrender to the partner. After undergoing short-term logotherapy, the patient's excessive attention and intention of her ability to experience orgasm had been dereflected, to introduce another logotherapeutic term. When her attention was refocused toward the proper object, that is, the partner, orgasm established itself spontaneously. Footnote: In order to treat cases of sexual impotence, a specific logotherapeutic technique has been developed based on the theory of hyperintention and hyperreflection, as sketched above. Victor E. Frankel, The Pleasure Principle and Sexual Neurosis, The International Journal of Sexology, Volume Five, Number Three, 1952, Pages 128 to 30. Of course, this cannot be dealt with in this brief presentation of the principles of logotherapy. Logotherapy bases its technique, called paradoxical intention, on the twofold fact that fear brings about that which one is afraid of, and that hyperintention makes impossible what one wishes. In German, I described paradoxical intention as early as 1939. Victor E. Frankl's Medikamentösen Unterstützung der Psychotherapie bei Neurosen Schweizer Archiv for Neurologie und Psychiatrie, volume 43, pages 26 to 31. In this approach the phobic patient is invited to intend even if only for a moment precisely that which he fears. Let me recall a case. A young physician consulted me because of his fear of perspiring. Whenever he expected an outbreak of perspiration, this anticipatory anxiety was enough to precipitate excessive sweating. In order to cut this circle formation, I advised the patient, in the event that sweating should recur, to resolve deliberately to show people how much he could sweat. A week later he returned to report that, whenever he met anyone who triggered his anticipatory anxiety, he said to himself, I only sweated out of a quart before, but now I'm going to pour at least ten quarts. The result was that, after suffering from his phobia for four years, he was able, after a single session, to free himself permanently of it within one week. The reader will note that this procedure consists of a reversal of the patient's attitude, inasmuch as his fear is replaced by a paradoxical wish. By this treatment the wind is taken out of the sails of the anxiety. Such a procedure, however, must make use of the specifically human capacity for self-detachment inherent in a sense of humour. This basic capacity to detach one from oneself is actualized whenever the logotherapeutic technique called paradoxical intention is applied. At the same time, the patient is enabled to put himself at a distance from his own neurosis. A statement consistent with this is found in Gordon W. Allport's book The Individual and His Religion. The neurotic who learns to laugh at himself may be on the way to self-management, perhaps to cure. New York, The Macmillan Company, 1956, page 92. Paradoxical intention is the empirical validation and clinical application of Allport's statement. A few more case reports may serve to clarify this method further. The following patient was a bookkeeper, who had been treated by many doctors and in several clinics without any therapeutic success. When he was admitted to my hospital department, he was in extreme despair, confessing that he was close to suicide. For some years he had suffered from a writer's cramp which had recently become so severe that he was in danger of losing his job. Therefore only immediate short-term therapy could alleviate the situation. In starting treatment, Dr. Eva Kosdera recommended to the patient that he do just the opposite of what he usually had done, namely, instead of trying to write as neatly and legibly as possible, to write with the worst possible scrawl. He was advised to say to himself, Now I will show people what a good scribbler I am and at the moment in which he deliberately tried to scribble, he was unable to do so. "'I tried to scrawl, but simply could not do it,' he said the next day. Within forty-eight hours the patient was in this way freed from his writer's cramp, and remained free for the observation period after he had been treated. He is a happy man again, and fully able to work. A similar case, dealing, however, with speaking rather than writing, was related to me by a colleague in the laryngological department of the Vienna Polyclinic Hospital. It was the most severe case of stuttering he had come across in his many years of practice. Never in his life, as far as the stutterer could remember, had he been free from his speech trouble even for a moment, except once. This happened when he was twelve years old, and had hooked a ride on a street-car. When caught by the conductor, he thought that the only way to escape would be to elicit his sympathy, and so he tried to demonstrate that he was just a poor stuttering boy, At that moment, when he tried to stutter, he was unable to do it. Without meaning to, he had practised paradoxical intention, though not for therapeutic purposes. However, this presentation should not leave the impression that paradoxical intention is effective only in monosymptomatic cases. By means of this logotherapeutic technique, my staff at the Vienna Polyclinic Hospital has succeeded in bringing relief even in obsessive-compulsive neuroses of a most severe degree and duration. I refer, for instance, to a woman sixty-five years of age who had suffered for sixty years from a washing compulsion. Dr. Eva Cosdera started logotherapeutic treatment by means of paradoxical intention, and two months later the patient was able to lead a normal life. Before admission to the neurological department of the Vienna Polyclinic Hospital, she had confessed, Life was hell for me. Handicapped by her compulsion and bacteriophobic obsession, She finally remained in bed all day, unable to do any housework. It would not be accurate to say that she is now completely free of symptoms, for an obsession may come to her mind. However, she is able to joke about it, as she says, in short, to apply paradoxical intention. Paradoxical intention can also be applied in cases of sleep disturbance. The fear of sleeplessness results in a hyper-intention to fall asleep, which in turn incapacitates the patient to do so. Footnote. The fear of sleeplessness is, in the majority of cases, due to the patient's ignorance of the fact that the organism provides itself by itself with the minimum amount of sleep really needed. To overcome this particular fear, I usually advise the patient not to try to sleep, but rather to try to do just the opposite, that is, to stay awake as long as possible. In other words, the hyper-intention to fall asleep arising from the anticipatory anxiety of not being able to do so, must be replaced by the paradoxical intention not to fall asleep, which soon will be followed by sleep. Paradoxical intention is no panacea, yet it lends itself as a useful tool in treating obsessive-compulsive and phobic conditions, especially in cases with underlying anticipatory anxiety. Moreover, it is a short-term therapeutic device. However. One should not conclude that such a short-term therapy necessarily results in only temporary therapeutic effects. One of the more common illusions of Freudian orthodoxy, to quote the late Emil A. Gutheil, is that the durability of results corresponds to the length of therapy. American Journal of Psychotherapy, 10, 1956, page 134. In my files there is, for instance, the case report of a patient to whom paradoxical intention was administered more than twenty years ago. The therapeutic effect proved to be, nevertheless, a permanent one. One of the most remarkable facts is that paradoxical intention is effective regardless of the etiological basis of the case concerned. This confirms a statement once made by Edith Weisskopf-Jolson, Although traditional psychotherapy has insisted that therapeutic practices have to be based on findings on etiology, it is possible that certain factors might cause neuroses during early childhood, and that entirely different factors might relieve neuroses during adulthood. Some comments on a Viennese school of psychiatry, the Journal of Abnormal and Social Psychology, 51, 1955, pages 701 to 3. As for the actual causation of neuroses, apart from constitutional elements, whether somatic or psychic in nature, such feedback mechanisms as anticipatory anxiety seem to be a major pathogenic factor. A given symptom is responded to by a phobia. The phobia triggers the symptom, and the symptom, in turn, reinforces the phobia. A similar chain of events, however, can be observed in obsessive-compulsive cases, in which the patient fights the ideas which haunt him. Footnote, this is often motivated by the patient's fear that his obsessions indicate an imminent or even actual psychosis. The patient is not aware of the empirical fact that an obsessive-compulsive neurosis is immunizing him against a formal psychosis, rather than endangering him in this direction. Thereby, however, he increases their power to disturb him, since pressure precipitates counter-pressure. Again the symptom is reinforced. On the other hand, as soon as the patient stops fighting his obsessions, and instead tries to ridicule them by dealing with them in an ironical way, by applying paradoxical intention, the vicious circle is cut. The symptom diminishes and finally atrophies. In the fortunate case where there is no existential vacuum which invites and elicits the symptom, the patient will not only succeed in ridiculing his neurotic fear, but finally will succeed in completely ignoring it. As we see, anticipatory anxiety has to be counteracted by paradoxical intention. Hyper-intention as well as hyperreflection, have to be counteracted by dereflection. Dereflection, however, ultimately is not possible, except by the patient's orientation toward his specific vocation and mission in life. Footnote. This conviction is supported by Allport, who once said, As the focus of striving shifts from the conflict to selfless goals, the life as a whole becomes sounder, even though the neurosis may never completely disappear. Opposite Page 95. It is not the neurotic's self-concern, whether pity or contempt, which breaks the circle formation. The cue to cure is self-transcendence. The Collective Neurosis Every age has its own collective neurosis, and every age needs its own psychotherapy to cope with it. The existential vacuum which is the mass neurosis of the present time can be described as a private and personal form of nihilism, for nihilism can be defined as the contention that being has no meaning. As for psychotherapy, however, it will never be able to cope with this state of affairs on a mass scale if it does not keep itself free from the impact and influence of the contemporary trends of a nihilistic philosophy. Otherwise it represents a symptom of the mass neurosis rather than its possible cure. Psychotherapy would not only reflect a nihilistic philosophy, but also, even though unwillingly and unwittingly, transmit to the patient what is actually a caricature rather than a true picture of man. First of all, there is a danger inherent in the teaching of man's nothing butness, the theory that man is nothing but the result of biological, psychological, and sociological conditions, or the product of heredity and environment. Such a view of man makes a neurotic believe what he is prone to believe anyway, namely that he is the pawn and victim of outer influences or inner circumstances. This neurotic fatalism is fostered and strengthened by a psychotherapy which denies that man is free. To be sure, A human being is a finite thing, and his freedom is restricted. It is not freedom from conditions, but it is freedom to take a stand toward the conditions. As I once put it, as a professor in two fields, neurology and psychiatry, I am fully aware of the extent to which man is subject to biological, psychological, and sociological conditions. But in addition to being a professor in two fields, I am a survivor of four camps— concentration camps that is and as such i also bear witness to the unexpected extent to which man is capable of defying and braving even the worst conditions conceivable from value dimensions in teaching a color television film produced by hollywood animators inc for the california junior college association critique of pan determinism Psychoanalysis has often been blamed for its so-called pansexualism. I, for one, doubt whether this reproach has ever been legitimate. However, there is something which seems to me to be an even more erroneous and dangerous assumption, namely that which I call pandeterminism. By that I mean the view of man which disregards his capacity to take a stand toward any conditions whatsoever. Man is not fully conditioned and determined but rather determines himself whether he gives in to conditions or stands up to them. In other words, man is ultimately self-determining. Man does not simply exist, but always decides what his existence will be, what he will become in the next moment. By the same token, every human being has the freedom to change at any instant. Therefore we can predict his future only within the large framework of a statistical survey referring to a whole group. The individual personality, however, remains essentially unpredictable. The basis for any predictions would be represented by biological, psychological, or sociological conditions. Yet one of the main features of human existence is the capacity to rise above such conditions, to grow beyond them. Man is capable of changing the world for the better, if possible, and of changing himself for the better, if necessary. Let me cite the case of Dr. J., He was the only man I ever encountered in my whole life whom I would dare to call a Mephistophelian being, a satanic figure. At that time he was generally called the mass murderer of Steinhoff, the large mental hospital in Vienna. When the Nazis started their euthanasia program, he held all the strings in his hands, and was so fanatic in the job assigned to him that he tried not to let one single psychotic individual escape the gas chamber. After the war, when I came back to Vienna, I asked what had happened to Dr. J. He had been imprisoned by the Russians in one of the isolation cells of Steinhoff, they told me. The next day, however, the door of his cell stood open, and Dr. J. was never seen again. Later I was convinced that, like others, he had, with the help of his comrades, made his way to South America. More recently, however, I was consulted by a former Austrian diplomat, who had been imprisoned behind the Iron Curtain for many years, first in Siberia, and then in the famous Lubyanka prison in Moscow. While I was examining him neurologically, he suddenly asked me whether I happened to know Dr. J. After my affirmative reply, he continued, I made his acquaintance in Lubyanka. There he died, at about the age of forty, from cancer of the urinary bladder. Before he died, however, he showed himself to be the best comrade you can imagine. He gave consolation to everybody— He lived up to the highest conceivable moral standard. He was the best friend I ever met during my long years in prison. This is the story of Dr. J., the mass murderer of Steinhoff. How can we dare to predict the behavior of man? We may predict the movements of a machine, of an automaton. More than this, we may even try to predict the mechanisms or dynamisms of the human psyche as well. But man is more than psyche. Freedom, however, is not the last word. Freedom is only part of the story and half of the truth. Freedom is but the negative aspect of the whole phenomenon whose positive aspect is responsibleness. In fact, freedom is in danger of degenerating into mere arbitrariness, unless it is lived in terms of responsibleness. That is why I recommend that the Statue of Liberty on the East Coast be supplemented by a Statue of Responsibility. the west coast. THE PSYCHIATRIC CREDO There is nothing conceivable which would so condition a man as to leave him without the slightest freedom. Therefore, a residue of freedom, however limited it may be, is left to man in neurotic and even psychotic cases. Indeed, the innermost core of the patient's personality is not even touched by psychosis. An incurably psychotic individual may lose his usefulness, but yet retain the dignity of a human being. This is my psychiatric credo. Without it, I should not think it worthwhile to be a psychiatrist. For whose sake? Just for the sake of a damaged brain machine which cannot be repaired? If the patient were not definitely more, euthanasia would be justified. Psychiatry Rehumanized For too long a time—for half a century, in fact—psychiatry tried to interpret the human mind merely as a mechanism, and consequently the therapy of mental disease merely in terms of a technique. I believe this dream has been dreamt out. What now begins to loom on the horizon are not the sketches of a psychologized medicine, but rather those of a humanized psychiatry. A doctor, however, who would still interpret his own role mainly as that of a technician, would confess that he sees in his patient nothing more than a machine, instead of seeing the human being behind the disease. A human being is not one thing among others. Things determine each other, but man is ultimately self-determining. What he becomes, within the limits of endowment and environment, he has made out of himself. In the concentration camps, for example, in this living laboratory and on this testing ground, We watched and witnessed some of our comrades behave like swine, while others behaved like saints. Man has both potentialities within himself. Which one is actualized depends on decisions, but not on conditions. Our generation is realistic, for we have come to know man as he really is. After all, man is that being who invented the gas chambers of Auschwitz. However. He is also that being who entered those gas-chambers upright, with the Lord's Prayer, or the Shema Yisrael, on his lips. Postscript 1984 The Case for a Tragic Optimism This chapter is based on a lecture I presented at the Third World Congress of Logotherapy, Regensburg University, West Germany, June 1983 dedicated to the memory of Edith Weisskopf-Jolson, whose pioneering efforts in logotherapy in the United States began as early as 1955, and whose contributions to the field have been invaluable. Let us first ask ourselves what should be understood by a tragic optimism. In brief, it means that one is and remains optimistic in spite of the tragic triad, as it is called in logotherapy a triad which consists of those aspects of human existence which may be circumscribed by one pain two guilt and three death this chapter in fact raises the question how is it possible to say yes to life in spite of all that how to pose the question differently can life retain its potential meaning in spite of its tragic aspects after all saying yes to life in spite of everything to use the phrase in which the title of a German book of mine is couched, presupposes that life is potentially meaningful under any conditions, even those which are most miserable. And this in turn presupposes the human capacity to creatively turn life's negative aspects into something positive or constructive. In other words, what matters is to make the best of any given situation. The best, however, is that which in Latin is called optimum, Hence the reason I speak of a tragic optimism, that is, an optimism in the face of tragedy, and in view of the human potential which at its best always allows for 1. turning suffering into a human achievement and accomplishment, 2. deriving from guilt the opportunity to change oneself for the better, and 3. deriving from life's transitoriness an incentive to take responsible action. It must be kept in mind, however, that optimism is not anything to be commanded or ordered. One cannot even force oneself to be optimistic indiscriminately, against all odds, against all hope. And what is true for hope is also true for the other two components of the triad, inasmuch as faith and love cannot be commanded or ordered either. To the European, it is a characteristic of the American culture that, again and again, one is commanded and ordered to be happy. But happiness cannot be pursued, it must ensue. One must have a reason to be happy. Once the reason is found, however, one becomes happy automatically. As we see, a human being is not one in pursuit of happiness, but rather in search of a reason to become happy, last but not least, through actualizing the potential meaning inherent and dormant in a given situation. This need for a reason is similar in another specifically human phenomenon. Laughter. If you want anyone to laugh, you have to provide him with a reason. For example, you have to tell him a joke. In no way is it possible to evoke real laughter by urging him, or having him urge himself, to laugh. Doing so would be the same as urging people posed in front of a camera to say, cheese, only to find that in the finished photographs their faces are frozen in artificial smiles. In logotherapy, such a behaviour pattern is called hyperintention. It plays an important role in the causation of sexual neurosis, be it frigidity or impotence. The more a patient, instead of forgetting himself through giving himself, directly strives for orgasm, that is, sexual pleasure, the more this pursuit of sexual pleasure becomes self-defeating. Indeed, what is called the pleasure principle is rather a fun spoiler. Once an individual's search for a meaning is successful, it not only renders him happy, but also gives him the capability to cope with suffering. And what happens if one's groping for a meaning has been in vain? This may well result in a fatal condition. Let us recall, for instance, what sometimes happened in extreme situations such as prisoner of war camps or concentration camps. In the first, as I was told by American soldiers, a behavior pattern crystallized to which they referred as give-up-itis. In the concentration camps, this behaviour was paralleled by those who, one morning at five, refused to get up and go to work, and instead stayed in the hut, on the straw, wet with urine and faeces. Nothing, neither warnings nor threats, could induce them to change their minds. And then something typical occurred. They took out a cigarette from deep down in a pocket, where they had hidden it, and started smoking. At that moment we knew that for the next forty-eight hours or so, we would watch them dying. Meaning orientation had subsided, and consequently the seeking of immediate pleasure had taken over. Is this not reminiscent of another parallel, a parallel that confronts us day by day? I think of those youngsters who, on a worldwide scale, refer to themselves as the no future generation. To be sure, it is not just a cigarette to which they resort, it is drugs. In fact, the drug scene is one aspect of a more general mass phenomenon, namely the feeling of meaninglessness resulting from a frustration of our existential needs, which in turn has become a universal phenomenon in our industrial societies. Today it is not only logotherapists who claim that the feeling of meaninglessness plays an ever-increasing role in the etiology of neurosis. As Irvin D. Yalom of Stanford University states in Existential Psychotherapy, Of forty consecutive patients applying for therapy at a psychiatric outpatient clinic, twelve had some major problem involving meaning, as adjudged from self-ratings, therapists, or independent judges. Basic Books, New York, 1980, page 448. Thousands of miles east of Palo Alto, the situation differs only by one per cent. The most recent pertinent statistics indicate that in Vienna, 29% of the population complain that meaning is missing from their lives. As to the causation of the feeling of meaninglessness, one may say, albeit in an oversimplifying vein, that people have enough to live by, but nothing to live for. They have the means, but no meaning. To be sure, some do not even have the means. In particular, I think of the mass of people who are today unemployed. Fifty years ago, I published a study devoted to a specific type of depression I had diagnosed in cases of young patients suffering from what I called unemployment neurosis. And I could show that this neurosis really originated in a twofold erroneous identification. Being jobless was equated with being useless, and being useless was equated with having a meaningless life. Consequently, Whenever I succeeded in persuading the patients to volunteer in youth organizations, adult education, public libraries, and the like, in other words, as soon as they could fill their abundant free time with some sort of unpaid but meaningful activity, their depression disappeared, although their economic situation had not changed, and their hunger was the same. The truth is that man does not live by welfare alone. Along with unemployment neurosis, which is triggered by an individual's socioeconomic situation, there are other types of depression which are traceable back to psychodynamic or biochemical conditions, whichever the case may be. Accordingly, psychotherapy and pharmacotherapy are indicated respectively. Insofar as the feeling of meaninglessness is concerned, however, we should not overlook and forget that, per se, it is not a matter of pathology. Rather than being the sign and symptom of a neurosis, it is, I would say, the proof of one's humanness. But although it is not caused by anything pathological, it may well cause a pathological reaction. In other words, it is potentially pathogenic. Just consider the mass neurotic syndrome so pervasive in the young generation. There is ample empirical evidence that the three facets of this syndrome depression, aggression, addiction are due to what is called in logotherapy the existential vacuum, a feeling of emptiness and meaninglessness. It goes without saying that not each and every case of depression is to be traced back to a feeling of meaninglessness, nor does suicide, in which depression sometimes eventuates, always result from an existential vacuum. But even if each and every case of suicide had not been undertaken out of a feeling of meaninglessness, It may well be that an individual's impulse to take his life would have been overcome had he been aware of some meaning and purpose worth living for. If, thus, a strong meaning orientation plays a decisive role in the prevention of suicide, what about intervention in cases in which there is a suicide risk? As a young doctor, I spent four years in Austria's largest state hospital, where I was in charge of the pavilion in which severely depressed patients were accommodated most of them having been admitted after a suicide attempt. I once calculated that I must have explored 12,000 patients during those four years. What accumulated was quite a store of experience, from which I still draw whenever I am confronted with someone who is prone to suicide. I explained to such a person that patients have repeatedly told me how happy they were that the suicide attempt had not been successful. Weeks, months, years later, they told me, It turned out that there was a solution to their problem, an answer to their question, a meaning to their life. Even if things only take such a good turn in one of a thousand cases, my explanation continues, who can guarantee that in your case it will not happen one day, sooner or later? But in the first place you have to live to see the day on which it may happen, so you have to survive in order to see that day dawn, and from now on the responsibility for survival does not leave you. Regarding the second facet of the mass neurotic syndrome, aggression, let me cite an experiment once conducted by Carolyn Wood-Sheriff. She had succeeded in artificially building up mutual aggressions between groups of Boy Scouts, and observed that the aggressions only subsided when the youngsters dedicated themselves to a collective purpose—that is, the joint task of dragging out of the mud a carriage in which food had to be brought to their camp. Immediately they were not only challenged, but also united by a meaning they had to fulfil. Footnote for further information on this experiment, see Victor E. Frankel, The Unconscious God, New York, Simon and Schuster, nineteen seventy-eight, page one hundred and forty, and Victor E. Frankel, The Unheard Cry for Meaning, New York, Simon and Schuster, nineteen seventy-eight, page thirty-six. As for the third issue, addiction, I am reminded of the findings presented by Anne Marie von Forstmeier. Who noted that, as evidenced by tests and statistics, 90% of the alcoholics she studied had suffered from an abysmal feeling of meaninglessness. Of the drug addicts studied by Stanley Krippner, 100% believed that things seemed meaningless. Footnote. For further information see The Unconscious God, pages 97 to 100, and The Unheard Cry for Meaning, pages 26 to 28. Now let us turn to the question of meaning itself. To begin with, I would like to clarify that, in the first place, the logotherapist is concerned with the potential meaning inherent and dormant in all the single situations one has to face throughout his or her life. Therefore, I will not be elaborating here on the meaning of one's life as a whole, although I do not deny that such a long-range meaning does exist. To invoke an analogy, consider a movie. It consists of thousands upon thousands of individual pictures, and each of them makes sense and carries a meaning. Yet the meaning of the whole film cannot be seen before its last sequence is shown. However, we cannot understand the whole film without having first understood each of its components, each of the individual pictures. Isn't it the same with life? Doesn't the final meaning of life, too, reveal itself, if at all only at its end, on the verge of death? And doesn't this final meaning, too, depend on whether or not the potential meaning of each single situation has been actualized to the best of the respective individual's knowledge and belief? The fact remains that meaning and its perception, as seen from the logotherapeutic angle, is completely down to earth, rather than afloat in the air or resident in an ivory tower. Sweepingly, I would locate the cognition of meaning of a personal meaning of a concrete situation, midway between an aha experience, along the lines of Karl bühler's concept, and a gestalt perception, say along the lines of Max Wertheimer's theory. The perception of meaning differs from the classical concept of gestalt perception, in so far as the latter implies the sudden awareness of a figure on a ground. Whereas the perception of meaning as I see it more specifically boils down to becoming aware of a possibility against the background of reality, or, to express it in plain words, to becoming aware of what can be done about a given situation. And how does a human being go about finding meaning? As Charlotte Bueller has stated, all we can do is study the lives of people who seem to have found their answers to the questions of what ultimately human life is about— As against those who have not. Basic Theoretical Concepts of Humanistic Psychology, American Psychologist, 26, April 1971, page 378. In addition to such a biographical approach, however, we may as well embark on a biological approach. Logotherapy conceives of conscience as a prompter which, if need be, indicates the direction in which we have to move in a given life situation. In order to carry out such a task, conscience must apply a measuring stick to the situation one is confronted with, and this situation has to be evaluated in the light of a set of criteria, in the light of a hierarchy of values. These values, however, cannot be espoused and adopted by us on a conscious level. They are something that we are. They have crystallized in the course of the evolution of our species. They are founded on our biological past and are rooted in our biological depth. Conrad Lorentz might have had something similar in mind when he developed the concept of a biological a priori, and when both of us recently discussed my own view on the biological foundation of the valuing process, he enthusiastically expressed his accord. In any case, if a pre-reflective, axiological self-understanding exists, we may assume that it is ultimately anchored in our biological heritage. As logotherapy teaches, there are three main avenues on which one arrives at meaning in life. The first is by creating a work, or by doing a deed. The second is by experiencing something, or encountering someone. In other words, meaning can be found not only in work, but also in love. Edith weisskopf Jolson observed in this context, that the logotherapeutic notion that experiencing can be as valuable as achieving is therapeutic because it compensates for our one-sided emphasis on the external world of achievement at the expense of the internal world of experience. The Place of Logotherapy in the World Today, The International Forum for Logotherapy, Volume 1, Number 3, 1980, pages 3-7. to seven. Most important, however, is the third avenue to meaning in life. Even the helpless victim of a hopeless situation, facing a fate he cannot change, may rise above himself, may grow beyond himself, and by so doing, change himself. He may turn a personal tragedy into a triumph. Again it was Edith Weiskopf Jolson, who, as mentioned on page 136, once expressed the hope that logotherapy may help counteract certain unhealthy trends in the present-day culture of the United States where the incurable sufferer is given very little opportunity to be proud of his suffering, and to consider it ennobling rather than degrading, so that he is not only unhappy, but also ashamed of being unhappy. For a quarter of a century I ran the neurological department of a general hospital, and bore witness to my patients' capacity to turn their predicaments into human achievements. In addition to such practical experience, empirical evidence is also available, which supports the possibility that one may find meaning in suffering. Researchers at the Yale University School of Medicine have been impressed by the number of prisoners of war of the Vietnam War, who explicitly claimed that although their captivity was extraordinarily stressful, filled with torture, disease, malnutrition, and solitary confinement, they nevertheless benefited from the captivity experience, seeing it as a growth experience. W. H. Sledge, J. A. Boydston, and A. J. Rabe, Self-Concept Changes Related to War Captivity, Archive of General Psychiatry, 37, 1980, pages 430-443. to But the most powerful arguments in favour of a tragic optimism are those which in Latin are called argumenta ad hominem. Jerry Long, to cite an example, is a living testimony to The Defiant Power of the Human Spirit, as it is called in Logotherapy. Footnote: The Defiant Power of the Human Spirit was in fact the title of a paper presented by Long at the Third World Congress of Logotherapy in June 1983. To quote the Texarkana Gazette, Jerry Long has been paralysed from his neck down since a diving accident which rendered him a quadriplegic three years ago. He was seventeen when the accident occurred. Today Long can use his mouth-stick to type. He attends two courses at community college via a special telephone. The intercom allows Long to both hear and participate in class discussions. He also occupies his time by reading, watching television, and writing. And in a letter I received from him, he writes, I view my life as being abundant with meaning and purpose. The attitude that I adopted on that fateful day has become my personal credo for life. I broke my neck, it didn't break me. I am currently enrolled in my first psychology course in college. I believe that my handicap will only enhance my ability to help others. I know that without the suffering, the growth that I have achieved would have been impossible. Is this to say that suffering is indispensable to the discovery of meaning? In no way. I only insist that meaning is available in spite of, nay, even through, suffering provided, as noted in Part Two of this book, that the suffering is unavoidable. If it is avoidable, the meaningful thing to do is to remove its cause, for unnecessary suffering is masochistic rather than heroic. If, on the other hand, one cannot change a situation that causes his suffering, he could still choose his attitude. Footnote I won't forget an interview I once heard on Austrian TV, given by a Polish cardiologist who, during World War II, had helped organize the Warsaw Ghetto upheaval. "'What a heroic deed!' exclaimed the reporter. "'Listen,' calmly replied the doctor, "'to take a gun and shoot is no great thing. But if the SS leads you to a gas chamber, or to a mass grave, to execute you on the spot, and you can't do anything about it, except for going your way with dignity, you see, this is what I would call heroism—attitudinal heroism, so to speak.' Long had not been chosen to break his neck, but he did decide not to let himself be broken by what had happened to him. As we see, the priority stays with creatively changing the situation that causes us to suffer, but the superiority goes to the know-how to suffer, if need be. And there is empirical evidence that, literally, the man in the street is of the same opinion. Austrian public opinion pollsters recently reported that those held in highest esteem by most of the people interviewed are neither the great artists nor the great scientists, neither the great statesmen nor the great sports figures, but those who master a hard lot with their heads held high. In turning to the second aspect of the tragic triad, namely, guilt. I would like to depart from a theological concept that has always been fascinating to me. I refer to what is called mysterium iniquitatis, meaning, as I see it, that a crime in the final analysis remains inexplicable inasmuch as it cannot be fully traced back to biological, psychological, and or sociological factors. Totally explaining one's crime would be tantamount to explaining away his or her guilt, and to seeing in him or her not a free and responsible human being, but a machine to be repaired. Even criminals themselves abhor this treatment, and prefer to be held responsible for their deeds. From a convict serving his sentence in an Illinois penitentiary, I received a letter in which he deplored that the criminal never has a chance to explain himself. He has offered a variety of excuses to choose from. Society is blamed and in many instances the blame is put on the victim. Furthermore, when I addressed the prisoners in San Quentin, I told them that you are human beings like me, and as such you were free to commit a crime, to become guilty. Now, however, you are responsible for overcoming guilt by rising above it, by growing beyond yourselves, by changing for the better. They felt understood. Footnote See also Joseph B. Fabry, The Pursuit of Meaning, New York, Harper & Row, 1980. And from Frank E. W., an ex-prisoner, I received a note which stated that he had started a logotherapy group for ex-felons. We are twenty-seven strong, and the newer ones are staying out of prison through the pure strength of those of us from the original group. Only one returned, and he is now free. Footnote. C. F. Victor E. Frankel, The Unheard Cry for Meaning, New York, Simon & Schuster, 1978, pages 42-43. to 43. As for the concept of collective guilt, I personally think that it is totally unjustified to hold one person responsible for the behaviour of another person, or a collective of persons. Since the end of World War II, I have not become weary of publicly arguing against the collective guilt concept. Footnote. See also Victor E. Frankel, Psychotherapy and Existentialism, New York, Simon & Schuster, 1967. Sometimes, however, it takes a lot of didactic tricks to detach people from their superstitions. An American woman once confronted me with a reproach, "'How can you still write some of your books in German?' Adolf Hitler's language. In response I asked her if she had knives in her kitchen." And when she answered that she did, I acted dismayed and shocked, exclaiming, "'How can you still use knives after so many killers have used them to stab and murder their victims?' She stopped objecting to my writing books in German. The third aspect of the tragic triad concerns death. But it concerns life as well, for at any time each of the moments of which life consists is dying, and that moment will never recur.' And yet is not this transitoriness a reminder that challenges us to make the best possible use of each moment of our lives? It certainly is, and hence my imperative, live as if you were living for the second time, and had acted as wrongly the first time as you are about to act now. In fact, the opportunities to act properly, the potentialities to fulfil a meaning, are affected by the irreversibility of our lives. But also the potentialities alone are so affected, for as soon as we have used an opportunity and have actualized a potential meaning, we have done so once and for all. We have rescued it into the past, wherein it has been safely delivered and deposited. In the past, nothing is irretrievably lost, but rather, on the contrary, everything is irrevocably stored and treasured. To be sure, people tend to see only the stubble fields of transitoriness but overlook and forget the full granaries of the past into which they have brought the harvest of their lives, the deeds done, the loves loved, and last but not least, the sufferings they have gone through with courage and dignity. From this one may see that there is no reason to pity old people. Instead, young people should envy them. It is true that the old have no opportunities, no possibilities in the future. But they have more than that. Instead of possibilities in the future, They have realities in the past, the potentialities they have actualized, the meanings they have fulfilled, the values they have realized, and nothing and nobody can ever remove these assets from the past. In view of the possibility of finding meaning in suffering, life's meaning is an unconditional one, at least potentially. That unconditional meaning, however, is paralleled by the unconditional value of each and every person it is that which warrants the indelible quality of the dignity of man. Just as life remains potentially meaningful under any conditions, even those which are most miserable, so too does the value of each and every person stay with him or her, and it does so because it is based on the values that he or she has realized in the past, and is not contingent on the usefulness that he or she may or may not retain in the present. More specifically, This usefulness is usually defined in terms of functioning for the benefit of society. But today's society is characterized by achievement orientation, and consequently it adores people who are successful and happy, and in particular it adores the young. It virtually ignores the value of all those who are otherwise, and in so doing blurs the decisive difference between being valuable in the sense of dignity and being valuable in the sense of usefulness. If one is not cognizant of this difference and holds that an individual's value stems only from his present usefulness, then, believe me, one owes it only to personal inconsistency not to plead for euthanasia along the lines of Hitler's program, that is to say, mercy killing of all those who have lost their social usefulness, be it because of old age, incurable illness, mental deterioration, or whatever handicap they may suffer. Confounding the dignity of man with mere usefulness arises from a conceptual confusion that in turn may be traced back to the contemporary nihilism transmitted on many an academic campus and many an analytical couch. Even in the setting of training analyses such an indoctrination may take place. Nihilism does not contend that there is nothing, but it states that everything is meaningless. And George A. Sargent was right when he promulgated the concept of learned meaninglessness. He himself remembered a therapist who said, George, you must realize that the world is a joke. There is no justice. Everything is random. Only when you realize this will you understand how silly it is to take yourself seriously. There is no grand purpose in the universe. It just is. There is no particular meaning in what decision you make today about how to act. Footnote Transference and Counter-Transference in Logotherapy, The International Forum for Logotherapy, Volume 5, Number 2, Fall, Winter, 1982, pages 115 to 118. One must not generalize such a criticism. In principle, training is indispensable. But if so, therapists should see their task in immunizing the trainee against nihilism, rather than inoculating him with a cynicism that is a defense mechanism against their own nihilism. Logotherapists may even conform to some of the training and licensing requirements stipulated by the other schools of psychotherapy. In other words, one may howl with the wolves, if need be, but when doing so, one should be, I would urge, a sheep in wolf's clothing. There is no need to become untrue to the basic concept of man, and the principles of the philosophy of life inherent in logotherapy. Such a loyalty is not hard to maintain in view of the fact that As Elizabeth S. Lucas once pointed out, throughout the history of psychotherapy, there has never been a school as undogmatic as logotherapy. Footnote. Logotherapy is not imposed on those who are interested in psychotherapy. It is not comparable to an oriental bazaar, but rather to a supermarket. In the former, the customer is talked into buying something. In the latter, he is shown and offered various things, from which he may pick what he deems usable and valuable. And at the first World Congress of Logotherapy, San Diego, California, november sixth to eighth, nineteen eighty, I argued not only for the rehumanization of psychotherapy, but also for what I called the degurufication of logotherapy. My interest does not lie in raising parrots that just rehash their master's voice, but rather in passing the torch to independent and inventive, innovative and creative spirits. Sigmund Freud once asserted, Let one attempt to expose a number of the most diverse people uniformly to hunger. With the increase of the imperative urge of hunger, all individual differences will blur, and in their stead will appear the uniform expression of the one unstilled urge. Thank heaven, Sigmund Freud was spared knowing the concentration camps from the inside. His subjects lay on a couch designed in the plush style of Victorian culture, not in the filth of Auschwitz. There, the individual differences did not blur, but on the contrary, people became more different. People unmasked themselves, both the swine and the saints. And today you need no longer hesitate to use the word saints. Think of Father Maximilian Kolbe, who was starved and finally murdered by an injection of carbolic acid at Auschwitz, and who in 1983 was canonized. You may be prone to blame me for invoking examples that are the exceptions to the rule," said Omnia pre clara tam difficilia quam rara sunt. But everything great is just as difficult to realize as it is rare to find," reads the last sentence of The Ethics of Spinoza. You may, of course, ask whether we really need to refer to Saints. Wouldn't it suffice just to refer to decent people? It is true that they form a minority. More than that, they always will remain a minority. And yet I see therein the very challenge to join the minority. For the world is in a bad state. But everything will become still worse unless each of us does his best. So let us be alert. Alert in a twofold sense. Since Auschwitz, we know what man is capable of. And since Hiroshima, we know what is at stake.